VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, July the 18th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, David Williams. He's produced the program. You'll be speaking with Dave when you pick up the phone. Give us a shout in the queue on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, big thanks to Linda for sitting in for me yesterday. Heard there was some discussion around crime and variety of issues similar to that. We can take it on again today if you're so inclined. But in standard fare, a couple of sports notes to kick it off. And where would you start with sports in these hot, sweltering, su- sultry summer days? Hockey. Congratulations, Abby Nook for town. Of course, one of only 23 athletes to go to a summer showcase in St. Catharines, Ontario. They've got a three-game set coming up against their main rival, the United States, in August. So good luck, Abby, as she gets another crack at the senior side. And to go to the under-18 division camp, Leah Wicks of St. John's. She's a defenseman. She plays her uh, hockey at the one of the most famous prep schools in the United States, Shattuck St. Mary's. She's going to get a chance to play for Canada, possibly, in an upcoming tournament in New York State this late summer. All right, good luck to them. want to say congratulations to the St. John's Soccer Under-12 girls team. They were in Laval for the Laval Cup. Came away with a silver medal. Came close in the final, too, so congratulations to all hands involved with the St. John's Soccer Girls Under-12 travel team. All right, and I'm, we, we did indeed say good luck and safe travels and what have you to all the competitors from this province, some 129 strong, competing in the Indigenous Games. I didn't realize just how big an event this was. So that 129, that encapsulates athletes, coaches, managers, a couple of chaperones, a bunch of different sports, volleyball, golf, swimming, badminton, what else we got here, table tennis, and track and field, archery, the likes. So there's on 5,000 athletes from the ages of 13 to 19. It's a nine-day-long event, and it's bigger in terms of numbers than the Canada Games. So good luck to all hands involved, specifically our 129 athletes. Okay. So you don't need me to tell you it's hot, right? It's insufferably hot for some people. Some, many, most, not built for this type of humidity in particular. So apparently there's Humidex warnings, and there's heat warnings all over the province, but Humidex might hit somewhere around 40 tomorrow, which is pretty steamy. And you know the obvious things, uh, try to watch yourself during these really hot streaks. So, you know, they talk about strenuous activity, and getting out, whether it be a dip in the pond or going for a walk, whatever it is, you got to watch your bobber. Way to go to the rover search and rescue. Last evening, they got a call with some, uh, uh, there was a Garmin inReach activation. A hike around the East Coast Trail near Shoal Bay, Bay. heat stroke symptoms, had to be rescued. So you may think that you are indeed built for some of this heat, but possibly not. An interesting coming from uh, Maggie Brown Brewery. She's been a contributor to this program many times as a veterinarian. I would have thought, and I suppose I've made this mistake in the past with a dog. So, of course, the, the dogs cool themselves by panting, and some of the heat released through their paws. So many people will say, well, an icy cold bath might be just exactly what the doctor ordered, but apparently not. It might make it even worse, so as do- says Dr. Brownbury. So it's cool water, maybe set up a kiddie pool without ice cold water, so you don't have to see the shrinkage in the pores of the paws. A little counterintuitive to me, but obviously she knows way more than I do. And you talk about heat. Saw this tweeted out yesterday. At Persian Gulf International Airport in Iran, yesterday there was a heat index of 152 degrees Fahrenheit, 66.7 degrees Celsius. I mean, 
Human beings can't tolerate that kind of heat. But imagine 152 degrees Fahrenheit at the airport yesterday. All right, and with this hot, dry weather comes the possibility of forest fires. So you all know the deal. We had a fleet of five. One has been out of service since 2017, I think it is, or 2018, when it was damaged, and then there was a bit of flip-flopping about what the province intended to do with that water bomber. Now with maintenance issues and pilot shortage issues, there's only one available water bomber. There's been somewhere in the neighborhood of 88 wildfires this fire season in this province. We have indeed shared resources with Quebec and Nova Scotia, and now might be reliant on those provinces to capitulate, or pardon me, to uh, understand our shortcomings and our shortages, and maybe we'll have to turn to them for help. Talk about rolling the dice. So, of course, when we talk about the whole world of recruitment and retention, it really feels like we're struggling mightily, maybe more than compared to other provinces in Atlantic Canada or across the country. But on this one, look, there's a pilot shortage, period. And so if they're being dangled huge compensation to move their very attractive and impressive services, whether it be as water bomber pilots or otherwise, then here we are. One water bomber, and you all see and feel the heat. So what that means for the potential for more fires this season, you know, fingers crossed we have a, a healthy and safe season, but it looks like there's very much a likelihood of more and more forest fires. So down to one water bomber. The union speaking out, of course, the uh, representative union there would be NAEP. And look, the water bombers, if you've ever seen them in action, talk about precision, uh, precision, impressive skills. I heard a stack quoted earlier today that a water bomber pilot will touch down more frequently in the course of a week than a commercial airline pilot would be in the course of a year. Of course, repeatedly back and forth from the lakes to the fires and vice versa. And so down to one water bomber. Let's hope that that doesn't come back to bite us. But anyway, I suppose the, the department says they're working towards a package that will be as attractive as elsewhere. And, of course, the pilot shortage has made travel another bit of a mess this year. If you have been impacted, I want to take it on. Let's go. Issue that we absolutely need to focus on, continue to focus on, whether it be the food crisis or the housing issues here in the country. We all know the importance of good data. Without it, it's extremely hard to create good policy. In the world of homelessness, look, the organizations out there working on it, whether it be at the Gathering Place or Iris Kirby or some of the emergency shelters or End Homelessness St. John's, for instance, and yes, many of these organizations will share data and the province would share data, but we have what people refer to as an urban bias because a lot of the homelessness numbers comes from tracking data coming from emergency shelters and or places like the Gathering Place. What happens if you live in a part of the province that doesn't have these types of services? So we don't really have a real firm way to capture all of those people. And sometimes there's snapshots in time done for homelessness. And it might look like one day there's 129 homeless people in and around St. John's, when the reality is that number is probably heavily underreported and maybe closer to eight, nine, hundred, a thousand. So whether it be, you know, couch surfing or one paycheck away from being homeless and or the issue of so many people living in the same home, they might not be homeless in the technical sense of the term, but they're on the verge of. Look, for instance, in Nunatsivut. The Nunatsivut Housing Commission says one in six homes in Nunatsivut are severely overcrowded. That's a rate five to six times higher than the national average, which, of course, is unsustainable. So it makes a lot of sense to me, this concept of urban bias. If we don't have services like commercial shelters and or other shelters, then how do we even possibly know? 
I mean, we've talked about pockets of money, whether it be in cooperation between the province and the federal government, to build the most recent was 850 affordable units. But we probably don't even know where we stand, realistically, regarding the numbers of people who are homeless in this province. So that's pretty scary numbers. You, look, if you live in this region, you know full well that homelessness seems to have doubled uh, year over year. Vacancy rate, because people who are working are able to afford some sort of uh, rental cost, but those have soared. They're only going to get higher, given some of the changes at the Bank of Canada with their benchmark interest rate. And people talk about the race against time. The country would have to work at breakneck speed to catch up with the housing issues and the housing shortage, rental and otherwise, across the country. So here we go. On June 27th of this year, 317 people were using a shelter under the Emergency Shelter Program. That's according to a statement coming from Newfoundland and Labrador Housing. But simply just one more part of the massive homelessness pie. I want to take it on. Let's go. And some, you know, we say affordable housing. But it's not a one-size-fits-all, right? Whether it be for seniors, folks with mobility issues, people dealing with mental health issues and or addictions or what have you. So affordable housing is, you know, a catch-all that probably betrays the actual need in the community. And if it's dealing with, say, for instance, mental health, I mean, I've heard some of the advocates in the province speaking out, and I believe Dr. Janine Hubbard, a psychologist, was on this program yesterday talking about things inside the mental health world, whether it be inside schools, and or addressing what is in the Towards Recovery five-year action plan for mental health and addictions. You know, I think it's fair to say there's absolutely been improvements made and a long row to hoe, whether it be for long-term access or otherwise. But the report, says many advocates, and I agree with them, it comes up a little bit short in really offering some measurable details. You know, we can talk about the expanse, expansion of virtual care, you know, some 250% decrease since 2016-17. That's good, but what did it mean for the individuals who engaged with these virtual care services? Then for the long-term plans, to give us some idea exactly to understand if we are on track. So some of the lack of details and further action plans involved, maybe, just maybe, there will be an opportunity for the government to hear what some of these advocates are saying and to expand their commentary and update some details about, you know, to try to reflect what these people are saying. In addition to that, and it really jumped off the page, and I think this is one of the reasons that we invited Dr. Hubbard on, who, as again, was on yesterday, is, you know, no mention of psychology. This group of professionals has long felt undervalued, and if you're not even part of this massive five-year action plan, how can that possibly be? We've had growing problems inside the ranks of psychologists in the province. I don't know exactly what Dr. Hubbard said. I'll have a revisit of it later on because I know the show has been posted. And yes, last Monday's show is now posted if you are still wondering. So anyway, throughout that entire mega report and huge concern for Canadians coast to coast to coast, we can absolutely grapple with it here this morning. All right, no one wants to hear about it, but there's just no end to the issues associated with the Muskrat Falls project. You know, some 9,000 additional pieces have to be added to the transmission portion at least. There's a need to fully dismantle one of the four units, and all four may indeed be impacted by a very similar issue. And then, you know, we haven't had an update in budget. It's hard to believe that it remains at $13.5 billion, because even in this world of turnbuckles, and this has a lot to it. 
So they've got some 160 spans that have to see an upgrade of these turnbuckles to control the galloping or the wild vibrations which trip the lines. Okay, but here's where the devil resides in the details. So if it's 100, let's say 160 for round number, they're going to prioritize the most difficult to get to areas. So we've seen how long it's taken to get into some of these places, you know, a 10-day turnaround for some repairs to be done. So it's one thing to add these turnbuckles to control the galloping, but that doesn't speak to the fact that if indeed there are problems throughout, say, the long-range mountains, what that's going to mean in the long term for getting to these transmission towers if indeed there's a failure during a severe winter storm. So, yeah, we can talk about four years required to do all this replacement work with a price tag of some $16 million and what that means for simply the galloping to lead to issues throughout the winter in particular. Well, anyway, just no end to it. All right, a couple quickies before we get to your calls. So, people, fair enough, they say if you were a recipient of one pocket of money from the province or the federal government, whether it be pandemic supports or otherwise, if you were technically ineligible, that money should be given back in some form. Eh, it's, a, it's a common thought. For folks who received the CERB, there was, you know, the Auditor General has given us a report that says there was some $4.6 billion that went to ineligible recipients. And people have seen their tax returns uh, clawed back or withheld a certain amount of funds here. We've gone to folks who are absolutely struggling mightily to make anything work for them these days, whether it be simply to afford groceries. We're going to claw that money back. But here's where it becomes pretty frustrating. Is, okay, if you want your pound of flesh, I get it. But in some circumstances, we're making a bad situation infinitely worse. Inside the world of the wage subsidy, it was extremely helpful to keep many businesses afloat, as you know what happened during the pandemic. But the Auditor General said there was over $15 billion paid to some companies who were technically or wholly ineligible. But CRA Commissioner uh, Bob Hamilton says, that's ah, not really worth the effort to go after that. I mean, how could that be? Keen focus on four, $4.6 but eh, whatever, to $15 billion. And you know the stories. The one that I use as an example all the time, and I'll stick with it, is the Royal Ottawa Golf Club. And they said the quiet part out loud at an annual general meeting when the treasurer said we have a surplus of $1 million, and someone from the crowd says, how did that happen? Oh, well, that was because of the wage subsidy, which is not what it was intended to do. So if you start there, start with the companies that for the first time ever created a stock dividend. Right? Or start with the companies that increased their dividends while so many other businesses were absolutely battling to stay alive. And companies knowingly and willfully were taking federal government money, using it for the not intended purposes, and here we are. CRA happy to go after the little guy. For the companies, eh, hardly worth it. It's only $15 billion. It's only a rounding error, sure. Bye. Anyway, brutal. And apparently they were, uh, pardon me, callers and Linda were talking about some crime-related matters, whether it be in very specific or pockets of the city or anywhere across the province. And now it's the concept of guns. Curiously, it was on this date in 1977 that the Canadian Parliament first passed law controlling the purchasing of firearms. And here we are in the first phase of the buyback program from some of the firearms that are now listed by the federal government as going to be banned or prohibited. You know, the issues surrounding handguns and what have you, and different changes to the law associated with handguns. But if crime is something that's on your list to talk about this morning, we can take it on. A couple of lighthearted ones before we get to your calls. So last week we mentioned what I thought was a great story about the want to make a travel staycation include trying to hit as many of the 20 rifts locations that are in the province. It's great stuff. 
So, okay, hey, let's see here. Da, 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 da. It's all by a man actually named Riff who established a store in the town of Windsor back in uh, 1947. And now it's said there's some 20 locations. There's a fellow named K. Wood Elliott. He's from GFW, Grand Falls, Windsor. He's going to take it on. <laughs> He's going to try to hit as many riffs as he can over the course of the summer, which is a pretty great Newfoundland and Labrador-based travel setup. And I wanted to say congratulations and good morning to the recipient of the prestigious, I had it right here, oh, here it is, the Lester B. Pearson Scholarship. And it's a young man named Gabriel Moise Vandering from St. John's. He's not going back to Holy Heart of Mary this coming uh, September. He's going to be going to the Pearson College of the World, United World Colleges in Victoria. Congratulations. Apparently this is a really experiential uh, base curriculum, whether it be with the, the three R's or canoeing and kayaking, hiking, scuba diving, creative arts. It's a very prestigious scholarship. And so a big year ahead for Mr. Gabriel Moise Vandering. Wanted to give him a shout out this morning. Hopefully he has a great year. And oh yeah, the retired jerseys. Good on the folks out in Grand Falls, Windsor once again, talking about uh, putting and giving some of the due accolades to some of their hockey players. And so, again, what am I doing here? I can't find anything. So they retired a bunch of jerseys. Oh, here we go. Got it right here. So here we go. Congratulations to uh, 1971 Montreal Canadiens draft pick Terry French, Brian Casey, uh, former Hamilton Red Wings star Terry Ryan Sr., four-time herder champion Donny House, Tony White, who was selected by the Washington Caps in the 10th round of the 74 draft. That's all during a cele uh, ceremony celebrating the 75th anniversary of the Joe Byrne Memorial Stadium, also recognized for his work behind the bench and in the boardroom, Stan Coffin. Major player. He's at, as the general manager for the Grand Falls Windsor Cataracts. They won five herders and an Allen Cup under his leadership. Congratulations to all hands. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOSIM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOSIM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show this sunny Tuesday. That only happens when you give us a shout. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin on the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. I want to start with um, uh, last week you had a lady on who uh, was worried about colon cancer and trying to get tests and, and the delays in trying to get tests, and she was moving to Nova Scotia. And when you were talking to her, she also mentioned that she was at a grocery store and the cost of food was less expensive. <clears throat> and she listed off the things that were her benchmarks, and and uh, there were, it was like uh, pepperoni and bologna and pork roasts and all that stuff and and I you know I was listening to I was thinking I wondered if wonder are people aware in Newfoundland and Labrador that we have the highest rate of <clears throat> stomach and colorectal cancers in the country and that both the World Health Organization and the cancer societies in Canada have both came out and said that uh, um, that just eating red meat which would include beef pork um, goat lamb uh, all are, should should be done in moderation and should only be ideally three servings a week and a serving is only three ounces which is about the size of a deck of cards but even more importantly um, processed meats are definitely carcinogenic and should be avoided and, that, and that's right from the Canadian Cancer Society as well as World Health Organization and and I, I think a lot of times we've allowed these foods to become staples in our diet and and you know i just want to put it out there that that they are you know in the same category as asbestos and and cigarettes so uh you know when we're feeding especially to our kids like what when i go to family uh events or if i go to community events and, and i see the hot dogs being dished out 
you know, I just, in my mind, you know, I try not to get too upset about it, but, you know, I think like, would they be giving kids cigarettes as well? Cause it's, it's really drawn a straight line. Like, like every time you expose yourself to the nitrites or the nitrates or the, or the, the different, especially when you cook meats as well, especially on barbecues, there's carcinogenic substances created and not to rain everybody's parade. Cause I know it seems like I probably do that way too much, but you know, we've allowed this to be not only a treat, but, but like literally like everybody's eating, you know, cooked ham and having their ham sandwiches and, and we don't realize the consequences. And even more, I think, I think even what even exacerbates it more is because we don't necessarily eat enough fruits and vegetables to counteract the damage that these things do to us, that it further exacerbates our chances of having cancer and, and different things that really shorten our lifespan and, and ultimately block up our hospitals and, and cause people who maybe just for, you know, who need the care and everybody needs the care, but, but it's making it harder on everybody to get the care that they need for all the myriad of challenges, health challenges that we all have. I think people understand the correlation or the relationship between their diet and their health. Why wouldn't they or how couldn't they? Man, you know, maybe I just, I just don't know. Like I literally like really good community people have community functions and they're dishing out the hot dogs. And I, I don't, I really can't see how that sweet person who cares so much about their community would in good conscience be doing it if they drew that straight line. So, you know, I just, I want to put it out there because I feel like if we don't change, you know, we're heading down a really bad path from a health point of view. And, and, you know, it's even worse when you can't even get seen. It'd be one thing if we had the ability to look after all these things and have the early detection and then quickly have the appointments and deal with it. But that's not a reality that is in our immediate or probably ever future. So if we don't prevent these things, then I really feel like we're... We have access to lots of vegetables. I think fresh fruit is becoming a real problem for many, whether it be access to it, because there's one thing for me and you and others listening from this part of the province who I can go to the grocery store and there it is. Now, sometimes the quality is less than attractive, but there's lots of parts of the province where that is easier said than done. And then you add in cost. I mentioned a specific circumstance where someone in front of me at the till one day last week had to turn back an apple, just too expensive for that person that day. When they looked at it as it got rung in by the cashier, I said, I can't, I can't take the apple. I mean, just imagine making those types of decisions at the grocery store simply based on affordability. Now, I think maybe we have misconstrued the entire conversation about cost of eating healthier. I can't remember when it was, but we tried to have a dietitian on to talk about you know, healthy diet menus and some price point stuff. And maybe, just maybe, we've talked ourselves into eating less than healthy based on cost when, in fact, it might not be the actual reality in the grocery store. But, yeah, anyway. I mean, I know that, for example, chicken is way less expensive, relatively speaking, pound for pound than than beef. And obviously, we even grow it here, so that even reduces its carbon footprint. And chicken is not in the category of these meats that, that the cancer societies and world organization are telling us to avoid. So like there's a substitution. Um, but a lot of times we have this, like we just had this perception, we want this big hunk of protein and, and there are other sources of protein and they are less expensive. For example, beans or lentils and, and you can get protein from vegetables and there's lots of really healthy super athletes who are total vegetarians and not that I'm advocating for people in Newfoundland to become vegetarians, but I, I definitely think it all starts at the grocery store 
And I think it does start with, I mean, you might have someone who'd make a lot of sacrifices for a, a roast, right? Where, whereas um, maybe they could get a lot of vegetables, I mean, fruits or vegetables for the cost of a, a roast. You know, you know I, I, again, it's not, I, th- I just think we have access to all this information on the internet and, and I'd, I'd love for people to just to spend a little bit more time researching. You can just Google, like, how do I eat healthier? How do I avoid? Like, you know, you can learn an awful lot and become, you know, in the past you had to rely on experts, you know, uh, to tell you, but now you can go to good sources. I mean, it's pretty, you know, just really, when it comes to nutrition, there's not a lot of disagreement over over what's healthy. So I just encourage people to, when you go, to, I mean, that's the time when you go to the grocery store, if you don't buy it, you won't eat it. Like, you know, if you want to go out and have a treat, then go out and have a treat. And that's a different thing. But but when it's part of your diet and it's a staple and that's the thing you really are, I mean, bologna, for example, like, I mean, if you want to have that, have it as a treat, maybe, question mark. But, I, you know, I don't think it should be a staple in my opinion. But, hey, I only get one vote. Uh, Quickly before I have to jump. go. Sorry. Okay. So, um, you know, climate change, obviously, is everybody's talking about it. And it's great. Ken McDonald was on last week and I heard him speak in November and I wasn't very impressed. And I was a little bit more impressed with his attitude yesterday about acknowledging that it that it existed and and sorry not yesterday last week and i just you know i just call on people to realize that you know obviously it's not only is it hitting communities hard like we're obviously seeing bc just get you know getting really really hammered and and of course the south coast but but it's also you know it's, it's up to us to try and react because it isn't just those immediate things that we're seeing there's there's long-term and short-term costs from these forest fires floods droughts storms and and we worry about food inflation, but all those things impact the cost of our food as well. And and it's also incre- increasing our cost of our insurance. And, you know, the Canadian government has, has studied it and and there's other groups that have studied it. And, and, you know, we're looking at, no matter what happens, we're looking at a loss of income because there will be jobs, there will be less jobs. And so, you know, by adapting, by investing in ad- adaptation now, we will save those some of those losses in the future. So, so when we look at like the province now is replacing culverts, and that all costs money, obviously. But it's better to do it in advance than it is when you cut off a part of a community, which then loses its economy because it, all of a sudden everything stops there, businesses stop, tourism stops. And so, you know, however, if we don't, if we don't, the most important way to reduce the damage that's going to happen in the future is by us reducing our carbon footprint. I mean, the province pays lip service to it and our elected people pay lip service to it. But in order, you know, you know right now, what they're saying basically we're about 1.1 degrees is what the planet has warmed probably. But now we're going into an El Nino, which will potentially warm up the, the country, the world, which seems like what's happening now is what they're saying. And, you know, but Canada is actually warming twice as fast and the North three times as fast as the world. And so within within our little piece of the world, we have we have all the permafrost that's up north. So if you get when you get to a point that you have a tipping point, which is where all of a sudden you can't reverse something. So you reach some point where there's enough energy going into the ground that all of a sudden the permafrost starts melting quickly. I built a building one time, and 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 during the winter it froze before it was totally covered in. And there's a really brilliant guy, and he said we're going to put these propane radiant heaters up there and for the first day it seemed like nothing happened like it wasn't thawing and then and then all of a sudden very quickly enough energy got in the ground and you couldn't move those propane heaters fast enough and it thawed the whole the whole 200 foot long building 
And that's kind of what we need to worry about is as these things heat up, you can't reverse them. So so right now, realistically, we're on, if we get to 1.5, um, there's the permafrost melting, which is a massive store of, of methane. There's the Greenland ice sheet, which at 1.5, they say that will probably reach a tipping point where you won't be able to reverse it. And there's the West Arctic, West Antarctic ice sheet, same thing. And Greenland is a seven-meter uh, uh, sea level rise, and the West Arctic is a three-meter sea level rise. So that's, that's 30 feet of sea level rise. So all these things are real, and and we can all do little things. And, and I just encourage people, again, use those devices that we have to figure out how we can try it. We have to reduce our greenhouse gases by 50% by 2030. That That's only like six and a half years away. Like That's going to take a lot of dramatic steps. I've done it, more than done it. It's not that difficult. I don't feel like I'm really suffering. I'm not at all. Um, and it's reducing my costs. So I encourage everybody to do do what you can, and, and you know, both in my business, I've done it as well. You know, probably more like around sixty or seventy percent reduction, in, and it's been challenging, and it's required investments, but those investments are paying off. So, I, you know, I just encourage everybody to do what you can, and and don't be intimidated by it, don't be scared by it. I find that by taking action, it just helps me sleep a little better at night. Appreciate the time, Tom. Okay, take care. Everybody. Take care. Bye bye. Uh, and on that front, you know, it's a great story. I think there's three provincial parks that have moved away from diesel generation electricity and uh, relying on solar panels. And, of course, with this summer in particular, it's been pretty clear, pretty sunny, and so consequently they haven't had to rely on any type of backup beyond their solar panels. So maybe if you have had that experience, enough for your camp or butter pot, for instance, which I've camped in, you doesn't matter where you are or how far away you are from the generators, you can hear it. And if there's any sputtering or misfiring or restarting some of those diesel generators, it comes with a pretty significant puff of black smoke, too. So I'm sure it's improved the camping experience. And I don't know what the numbers are. I should have read the story a little bit more carefully about how much money they've saved. Of course, it's an upfront cost to install solar panels. But if you talk about the the amount of diesel that's being burnt, cost recovery, I would imagine, happens very, very quickly. So, anywho, if you want to take that on. Someone sent me an email. I thought it it was strange. So... The seventh largest lottery jackpot in the United States is about to be, tickets are going to be sold on it, a billion dollars, one billion dollar Powerball. Someone asked me, why can't we have lotteries like that here? Well, for starters, about in and around nine or ten times the population in the United States, which kind of deals directly with the amount of the prize pool. But can you imagine the amount of money spent for people chasing the billion dollar Powerball dream? Holy macaroni. Talk about, you know, making decisions about how and where to spend your money, the lore. I mean, people will flood to the lotto kiosks with a chance to win the lotto max at whatever, $60 million or whatever the big numbers are. I don't play the lotto very frequently every now and then. I think of it when I'm in paying for my gasoline or something. But anyway, yeah. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we go back, the topic is entirely up to you. Do not go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Well, as mentioned, you know, that uh, the Muskrat Falls transmission issues and the need to install some 9,000 additional parts and the turnbuckles covering some 180, 60, 160 spans in between the transmission towers. And I mentioned, you know, then trying to get into some of these very remote parts of the province or along the transmission corridor and the proximity to access roads in a severe winter storm. So when you extend that out, of course, we think about our power needs based on our seasonal temperatures. 
Our peak demands are obviously throughout the wintertime. Now, some of that may indeed change if more and more people take advantage of some of the, say, the, for instance, the most recent $157 million in the oil to electricity program, mini splits and central heat pumps and all the rest of it. And I have to say, the mini split that we have in our home is paying for itself with trying to give me some relief from the hot summer temperatures and the humidity that's out there. To see the amount of water being sucked out of the living area by the uh, mini split is really quite something. But then you look at some of the power needs elsewhere. Now, where we might play a role. So nobody really knows much about what is the mythical beast or the unicorn that is the Atlantic Loop. But for many different parts of the country, and certainly a predominant uh, swath of the United States, their peak demand comes in the summertime. So at this point, there's a, something in the neighborhood of 85 million Americans who are living with extreme heat and heat warnings. And of course, their grids are struggling today, not in the wintertime. So when we look at the capacity here in the province with the current generating uh, generation that we produce and the potential for that to expand, and that might indeed be nearshore, offshore wind, which the negotiations continue between the province and the federal government to figure out how that falls into the regulatory issues and legislation required. But that's where we have opportunities for when we're not really in huge demand for power, is to find a market for power. Right now, we don't have any. You know, because even if you talk about excess power generated at Muskrat Falls, that is, we have a big portion of it that we owe to Nova Scotia, our partners, Amera or Nova Scotia Power, in the neighborhood of 22% of the power generated, simply because their investment in the 500 megawatt maritime link. And then, remember, their regulator has uh, already said that the province of Nova Scotia has the first right of refusal for any more power that they may indeed want at market price. So until we build something else, if we ever do intend on building something else, we don't really play a role in any of these big Atlantic loopy things or any of that kind of stuff because our winter demand, our peak demand, it is what it is. We really don't have a whole lot of power kicking around. You know, look no further than the fact that they're ad adding an eighth generating unit out of Beta Spare. So another billion dollars between Holyrood and Beta Spare, while we all still struggle with the foolishness of surrounding the perpetually cursed Muskrat Falls project, which again is as much a transmission project as a, is a power generating project. But yeah, you know, where we fall into all of that remains to be seen. I saw a question of the day. I mean, these are unscientific polls that websites run so that people come on and click and respond and interact, right? With us and us with you. And it's about the thirst for power. There's absolutely a thirst for energy. So people focus in on one source or another. Like, you know, people say, why would we do anything about uh, climate change and carbon emissions when China X, Y, and Z? China's actually building the largest solar power panel uh, installation anywhere in the world at the price tag of somewhere in the neighborhood of $40 billion. But, you know, whether or not it's going to be the quest for more wind energy or solar energy or why, uh, tidal energy or whatever the case may be, and or green hydrogen, I continually, look, when people are in support of, they will come out and voice their support in one form. Folks who are opposed, they come out in droves and speak very forcefully. So with the announcement now of nine projects in the whole wind to hydrogen to ammonia uh, that have been told are moving on to the next phase here in this province, the pushback in some corners is real. There's no part of the province as vocal about their opposition to these particular projects than the folks on the Port of Port Peninsula. Okay, and so be it. You can make your concerns heard all you want, and we're happy to take your call. But we don't even really know where some of these 
energy sources because I don't think a whole lot of countries are really that concerned. You know, if they are, have a hyper-focus on weaning off fossil fuels, and one of the greenest countries on the face of the earth being Norway, they still talk about the fact that, yeah, some 80% of the new vehicle purchases in Norway based on price point and government subsidies are electric vehicles. But even Norway says they're having a wicked old time weaning themselves off fossil fuels as quick as they thought they might be able to. A lot of that is contributed by diesel and trucks and what have you. And lots of commercial and industrial applications where the innovation or the tech hasn't caught up with replacing fossil fuel as the power source. So I don't know where the hydrogen growth goes. Now, it's really not my problem what the business model looks like. The province has a scheme set up, a fiscal framework, and, you know, in best-case scenarios, it can indeed put some monies in provincial coffers, will indeed create some jobs, that's undeniable. In the construction phase, if a variety of them move forward, we're talking about thousands upon thousands of jobs that we don't even have people to satisfy. But in the world of hydrogen as an application beyond ammonia, if you look at the world of transportation, because transportation has a huge issue with emissions and, uh, of course, some of the conversations surrounding hydrogen is to go into creating hydrogen-powered vehicles. A lot of the manufacturers have kind of come and gone on that one a little bit. It seems like the market will be dominated by electric vehicles or hybrids versus the hydrogen. Now, that could change. And I'm the furthest thing from an energy or a transportation expert. But when people's concern is, you know, what are we losing with these projects? Uh, federal money, for sure. Huge tax credits available from the federal government. On behalf of the province, no cash on the barrelhead. People can indeed debate the veracity or the strength of the fiscal framework or the water royalty or whatever the case may be. So other than what might be an environmental concern, and some people talk about an eyesore concern, there's not a whole lot of giveaway going on with these projects as much as some people want to say there is or think there are and use that as the basis of their pushback against it. But regardless if you're all in or all out, if you want to talk about power, because it is still going to be a big conversation around here, and it's not all simply about climate change. It's also simply about jobs and royalties, the expansion of the tax base, and everything under the sun. So it's not one thing or another. You know, sometimes we do reduce conversations to it's just this input and this output, and there's no, nothing else to consider, when in fact there's probably another dozen input-out issues or considerations to add to the conversation. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. My favorite is when you join us live on the air. So if you're in and around town, 273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the NDP member for Lab West. That's Jordan Brown. Jordan, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I, see, I listened to your preamble this morning, and you talked about the, the need for power, and I could not help but call in and talk about how here in Lab West we've been constrained with power restrictions for years now, and we can't grow. We can't move any further. We are constricted by the amount of electricity we can get, and we've been and it's had an effect on the mining industry and the mine service industry and even housing here in Lab West. I would imagine some of the big uh, mining companies out there, junior or otherwise, are talking about critical minerals and things that we can find in the Labrador trough and opportunities for their, uh, their profitability, and then looking at the reality. Access, housing, power, all the rest of it. So we can look at the minerals, but that's only a piece of the equation. Well, absolutely. So you, um, so there about a couple of years ago, Hydro and put out a document um, evaluating Labrador and its power needs. All regions of Labrador have a request in in the thousands of megawatts. Um, some of it came from the the data mining crowd, but a lot of it actually also came from the mining industry. They also have large requests in for electricity. 
So even uh, a few months ago, when uh, Rio Tinto IOC opened their new office in St. John's, well, reopened their office in St. John's um, to have a presence in the city again, um, even uh, the CEO, Mike McCann at the time, was, uh, who uh, was opening the office, looked right at the government officials that were sitting right in front of him and said, we need more electricity in Labrador West. We want to grow. We want to be a part of the, uh, you know, the solution when it comes to uh, decarbonizing the steel industry, which accounts for 20% of the global emissions is, alone is, is, is the steel industry. And they wanted to decarbonize the, the mining here in Labrador West. And, but we can't do it without the power. And we are constrained. And what's funny as far as we're connected directly to Churchill Falls, the second largest hydro dam in North America, and we can't get electricity in Labrador West. And when there was a fire in Charlottetown, we replaced diesel generation with diesel generation. I, I wonder what it looks like for, you know, if you have to use backup like diesel power generation or whatever the case may be, fine. But with the geographical expanse of Labrador and the possibility for onshore wind, I don't know if anyone's ever had a look at it, but you'd think the opportunities there would be massive. And so whether a corporation decides to do something like that on their own accord as they negotiate benefits agreements with the province, I wonder what the opportunity for alternative sources is in Labrador, because it was a head-scratcher when that diesel generation uh, plant caught on fire and we replaced it with another one. Yeah, and, and that's a big conversation we have to have. We've got to talk about it. But we're also, Labrador is the largest producer of hydroelectricity in the province, and second to Quebec. So we actually have opportunity already existing in our region when it comes to that. And as for the onshore wind, there was talks of what they called the Churchill Highlands, which was a large project, a wind project, that was proposed just north of Churchill Falls on the flats there along the reservoir. And that was kiboshed for Muskrat Falls. That was actually a precursor to Muskrat Falls. That whole plan was actually kiboshed. Somewhere in the archives of MUN or, or government, there was this whole plan on actually a large scale wind farm at Churchill Falls. Uh, another thing, too, is, um, you know, we, we look at, you know, how we distribute power and stuff like that. But, you know, uh, one of the longest transmission lines built at, in the time, um, uh, the AC line from Churchill Falls uh, for Twin Falls to uh, Labrador City, that's pre-dating Churchill Falls, uh, you know, that was a revolutionary thing at the time. And then they took that technology and then hooked Churchill Falls into the mainland system of Quebec, which was at the time a huge engineering feat. And those two systems have worked fantastically in Labrador for, you know, going on over 50 years. Actually, for the Twin Falls ones, almost uh, almost 65 years. So, you know, we we actually created some of the best infrastructure for hydroelectricity in our region and yet now we look at the other side of the coin now and look at what we've got with muskrat falls and, and, and i stopped and scratched my head goes what happened to the great you know the great planning and stuff we did back then and now we have this best <laughs> you know uh, you know we've got to get out in front of the negotiations too because it, there's no question in my mind mining opportunities are going to be significant here in the province and notably in labrador even though there's plenty of mining on the island but labrador let's be honest Remember when Alderaan were close to developing their mine? And they came to the province wanting a uh, power generation, a transmission line to be built, and wanted us to pay for it. So unless we are out in front of it to talk about power generation opportunities as opposed to building lines, transmission lines, paying for them with our money to fuel private sector operations, we've got to do better than that because they know they hold a lot of the cards here. Well, absolutely. It's a fine balance between, you know, private, uh, the private sector and the, and the public. You know, one, we don't want to, like, you know, scare them all away. But at the same time, too, we can't also carry the bag either for them if, they, if things go sideways. Um, yeah, and we also got to look at what the infrastructure of a community needs as well, because the responsibility of, uh, you know, the maintaining the community and growing the community is the province's 
responsibility. So, you know, when delivering power to homes, that's 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 the Crown Corporation's responsibility. So we got to find the balance of how do we get the power to the mines, but at the same time, how do we get the power to the homes as well and make sure we maintain that balance. Right now, I like we're maxed out in the winter time here with the load with the uh, with the load here. We we got no, we don't have much wiggle room. We're 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 we're, we're cutting it pretty close right now to what is uh, you know possible with the equipment that we have here. Um, but you know if we if you know tomorrow or something you know another mine you know Alderaan emerges emerges from the ashes or any of the other thousands of prospects that are in the Labrador trough actually come to some sort of fruition, you know we're we're not ready for them. The, the, we're 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 not ready. We we've been we've been sitting on our hands for too long. Um, that now that it'll take years to get us up to the point that where we actually need to be at. So this is where we got to look at the province and go. What are you doing? Like why are you stifling our growth? Why are you stopping us from actually proceeding as a, as a region? Because one of our biggest uh, issues we face right now in Labrador West is we can't grow, and therefore you know it's actually stifling like you know services, uh, health, even healthcare, uh, getting people to come up here, uh, business development. We're 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 confined by the fact that we can't. Increase our footprint because, you know, there you know some negotiations. You know, so many years ago, basically keeps us in this this lane that this is the maximum amount of power we can have. Yeah, I know you're in the news talking about the wildfires and water bombers. You know, we were talking about this before we had maintenance issues and pilot shortages. Now down to one available water bomber, and what may indeed be happening, whether it be on the island or where you live. This is a massive concern. It really feels like we're rolling the dice now. If other jurisdictions have very quickly responded to issues in their province with, well, let's see if we can't recruit or to poach, better said, water bomber pilots from this province, and consequently we've lost them, I think we have a complement of maybe six or eight pilots at this moment in time, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of half of what we need. What's the concerns you're hearing in Lab West? Well, Patty, if you go look at the active wildfire, almost majority of all the active wildfires this summer so far has been in Labrador West. A uh, majority of them now in, you know, what they call remote regions, so places, you know, that there's no access by road or anything like that. Um, but the majority of them were in Lab West because of the extreme heat and stuff and the dry conditions we've had here for since May. Um, and then at that time, you know, uh, we also had fires burning just on our other side of our border, you know, impacting our railway, impacting our highway, impact, impacting our transmission lines. And now we've come to find out that, you know, we've had we've having these pilot and crew issues. That you know, if something happened, what what is the likelihood of getting you know the correct uh, amount of uh, you know resources into the region? And that was an interesting. But here's the interesting conversation I had, Patty. I had with a retired um, uh, force firefighter. Um, at one time, we used to have a, a large contingent of uh, ground crew, plus we had planes here and all that ready to go uh, to protect the region. And since the 80s, we've dwindled and dwindled and dwindled down our actual resources when it comes to wildland firefighting to the point to where we're to now. And now we're at a point where compensation is even not keeping up pace with uh, the private sector. So we have these pilots taking off and going off other places, and we can't even fill some of the roles of our actually ground fire crews because the same reason compensation and, and benefits and stuff is just not there for them. So we've actually cut our actual public service down to a point where people are like, I'm not interested in working the public service, which is an interesting thing to hear. Even when I was growing up, people said, oh, go work for government. Great job, great benefits, you know, a great job opportunities, great place to work. Now but we're not competitive as the public sector. We've, we've, we've whittled everything down to the bone that people are just not interested in working for the public sector now, and that is the massive concern we got right now. Add to the water bomber issue and what you just mentioned. 
We've had a recent round of fitness tests where so many of our ground firefighting crews failed, and I don't know what that's meant for human resources and where we are to a full complement of forest fire, uh, firefighters, but that also adds a huge measure of consternation for folks, regardless of where you are in the province, with not knowing exactly whether or not we're prepared or anywhere near prepared if and when there was a couple of fires. Imagine if one, a massive fire sparked in Labrador at the same time one sparked in central Newfoundland with what we've got for ground and air resources. Oh, man. I don't know. It's a pretty worst-case scenario scene. Oh, absolutely. And this is, goes back to, you know, you know, the benefits and recruitment and retention, and but also like you know appreciation for the crews you got. You know, if we had the you know the benefits and the and the compensation and the work life balance that people would want in, in in you know the modern day, but at the same time you know shows respect to the employees that we have and the and employees we want to have. Well, then you wouldn't have these problems with you know you know crews with fitness tests and things like that because they would actually have the resources and the stuff there to maintain that and be able to maintain the lifestyle that they have for such a strenuous job as you know a, 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 a wildland firefighter. So this is the thing we have to go back to: is what are we doing internally as the public sector to actually incentivize, to actually increase the stock, and to actually you know keep people around, but also encourage people to come back? And that's what happened. I talk to people here in Lab West. There's tons of job openings here in the West in the in the public sector, but they look at me and go, ah, I don't want to go work for the public sector. The benefits are not that great. The pay is not that great. You know, like you know, this is unheard of. Like you know, even five, ten years ago, when people said, Oh, I can't wait. You know, uh, see if you know everyone used to like you know, you know, there used to be a rush to get you know apply for a job when it used to come up in the in the in the public sector. People used to like queue up to go for these interviews back then because everyone wanted to get in on this. Now they turn their nose to it because it's it, we whittle it down to a point where. It's not, it's not that incentivizing. We did this to ourselves. Yeah, possibly. That might be about your neck of the woods more than maybe other parts of the province because it's still a pretty attractive option to work for the public sector, I would suggest. But if you factor in what it costs to live in Lab West, probably very different than maybe getting a job at the public sector living in Gander. Well, so, well, Pat, well Patty, look at it this way. There's not many people lining up to, to apply for the jobs for, uh, for pilots, for water bombers. It's happening on the island, too. That could be, but that might also be about being wooed by a better offer elsewhere as opposed to working for the public sector is simply not that attractive. So I'd like to speak with maybe Jerry Earl if he knows a bit more about some of the specifics, like which provinces are coming calling here and what kind of differences are in place because, like most areas, we're talking about retention as opposed to focusing strictly on recruitment. My goodness, if we can't keep the water bomber pilot contingent we have, then it feels like we're starting from scratch or nearby. Uh, Jordan, I appreciate the time this morning. No worries. Take Take care. Bye-bye. Jordan Brown, NDP member for Lab West. Let's go ahead and take a break. We did indeed uh, tell you about the fact there was a rescue on the East Coast Trail yesterday, a hiker uh, experiencing heat stroke symptoms. You know, to talk about some of the issues, whether it be on that trail network or otherwise, we're going to talk to Shane Skinner. He's with the East Coast Trails uh, coming up right after the news. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, we all know the majesty of the East Coast Trails, but of course, any type of strenuous activity during this type of humidity comes with associated risk, and one of those risky situations actually happened yesterday afternoon right on the trail. Join us on line number five is uh, Shane Skinner. He's a representative of the East Coast Trails. Good morning, Shane. You're on the air. Patty, good morning. How are you doing today? That's kind. How about you? I'm doing good, man. Appreciate it. What do we know about what happened on the trail yesterday with that one particular hiker that was uh, developed some heat stroke symptoms? 
Yeah, I, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there. It was a warm day, and they, they did develop some heat stroke symptoms. Um, not fair for me to comment on the specific situation there, but it was heat-related, uh, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to call in today to have a quick chat and to hopefully inform some listeners who are getting out on the East Coast Trail for the rest of the summer. Um, you know, the, the biggest thing, the biggest piece of, I guess, guidance that I could give Patty, you know, a, a rule of thumb that we typically offer to folks who do touch base with the East Coast Trail Association is make sure that if you're heading out for an hour, you know, you should have 300 milliliters of water per hour while you're out hiking on the trail is kind of a good rule of thumb. So depending on how long you're out on the trail, you know, make sure you're adjusting accordingly. But um, we want to stay hydrated while you're out on the trail. Adjust your distance if required. Choose a shorter path. There's plenty of paths all along at the um, Avalon here. Lots of options. Lots, all of them have great scenery, great coastline views. Um, there was a ton of whales out on a number of the trails yesterday as well, which offered a, a little bit of extra um, sightseeing for some folks on the trail. So lots of options available to make sure that you are staying hydrated, choosing the appropriate trail for the uh, for the day and the weather and the heat that is present. And the last thing that I would bring up there um, is make sure you, you know, you do some sort of a trip plan. You should never head out on the trail, whether it's for a five-minute sightsee or, a, you know, a two-hour hike. You should always leave a trip plan. And all that really means, Patty, is let someone know where you're going, what time you plan to leave, and what time you expect to arrive home. So that, you know, God forbid something did happen, at least there is at least one person who knows your plan and, um, you know, can follow up accordingly with you. It all makes sense to me. A bit of safety first, as much as we want to get out and enjoy, it does come with a variety of risks, regardless of what you're doing. Some are very limited or low risk, some maybe a little bit more dangerous. But, you know, for even if your trip plan isn't uh, adhered to, it might not always be someone who you gave your trip plan to is right there at home to see whether or not you're there at 4 o'clock and calling your cell phone to see where you are or dropping you a text. What's it like to even have uh, connectivity out on the trail? I know it's, you know it's spotty even in parts of St. John's, but what's it like on the trail? Yeah, I, it's spotty out on the trail. Obviously, a lot of the uh, trail is in the remote wilderness, um, so it, it really depends on the trail itself that you are hiking on, Patty. Um, you know, anything in and around the St. John's metro area, you will have some pretty good cell coverage. Is it 100%? Absolutely not. But you do have some cell coverage. Um, but, you know, that all comes back to if you're going out for a 30-minute hike, you know, it may not be necessary to bring extra food. It may not be necessary to bring, you know, um, a ton of sunscreen or um, different change of clothes, rain gear, that kind of stuff. You know, you just need to make sure that you are prepared. If you're planning to be out for a while, um, you know, I don't want to say that you need to plan for the worst, but you certainly need to be ready for the worst. Have, has your organization been contacted by whoever, whether it be the provincial government or whoever is going to be running the new proposed trailway network on the Great Northern Peninsula? It sounds like an excellent idea, but you guys with the experience could maybe help them in design and planning. Have, has anyone been in contact with you? Uh, in, in a formal capacity, no. Um, you know, we're always talking with various trail networks and organizations across the globe, Patty, um, and the provincial government and federal government and municipalities all across the trail are all very supportive. So, you know, it is something that we have discussed in an informal manner, but in a, you know, a, a formal engagement, no, not necessarily, but um, always great to see trails being um, created, developed across the province. We, we certainly do have one of the, if not the best coastline in the world, in my humble opinion. And anything we can do to help market that for 
not only tourists who come to visit every year, but for our residents here in the province, it's absolutely fantastic to be able to see and to give people the opportunity to get out and experience the trail anytime they want. Help us understand how you think the province has recognized, because there's a variety of reasons people will travel, whether it be to see a whale or an iceberg or a puffin or adventure tourism or for the culinary scene or whatever the case may be, but how prominent would trail networks be in the appetite for tourists? And do we do a good job in you know promoting what we have because it's extensive? Yeah, we, we can certainly, uh, we can always be doing a better job, Patty, um, but as a whole, between the province and between us as an association, we do a fantastic job of advertising the East Coast Trail specifically um, to the to the globe. It was only a couple of weeks ago and we had our annual trail raiser community hike fundraiser in the town of Puchko that there was a gentleman from, I believe, Ohio who had driven up himself. He'd heard of the East Coast Trail, I believe, through a, uh, through a, a local trade show, local tourist show that he had attended had heard of the East Coast Trail Association and decided to drive up himself and through hike the East Coast Trail and just coincidentally was hiking the Pooch Cove section the same day as our annual fundraiser. Um, so, you know, stories like that happen every day, especially in the spring and summertime and peak hiking seasons. So, you know, as a whole, we certainly do do a fantastic job and the province is a, a big supporter and a big advocate of the trail and making sure that it, it stays pristine and, you know, that we leave no trace. I appreciate the time this morning, Shane. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Patty. Chat later. Bye-bye. Look forward to it. Bye-bye. Shane Skinner with the East Coast Trails. And, of course, construction, I think, is, has either begun or about to begin here in the city with the expansion of the trail network, specifically shared-use trails. When it was first talked about last year, the year before, there was a ton of people. You know, there was social media pushback, but, of course, that's it's kind of hard to know or, or to gauge where people are when we talk about social media because the dog pile happens very quickly. But with the shared use trail, the thought is that it just presents a real omnipresent danger to the walkers or the joggers or the runners because you will indeed have bikes and bikes can indeed get to a pretty big speed. I understand the concern. Nobody wants to create a inherently dangerous situation for anybody involved, whether it be pushing your child in the carriage or simply having a stroll with your earbuds in. But in other areas in the country where I've been and reading some of the data provided by others to me and some of the looking around I've done, it can be done pretty safely. So I don't know where the general public is on the shared use trail, but it did get an awful lot of emotional reaction on all sides proponents and those who were absolutely strictly opposed to it. So if that's an issue that you want to talk about today, if you're in and around town, I know that's a hyper-town issue, but that's the, that's the case. All right, and sticking with transportation or pathways or roadways, I'm always at a loss as to what the reaction should be of the criminal justice system regarding reckless, aggressive speeds and speeders. You hear the stories all the time. Car pulled over going 156 kilometers an hour, and there's a headline today about a motorcyclist caught to an 173 kilometers an hour in the 90 zone. All right, that's on the Robert E. Howlett Memorial Drive. For starters, that person has a death wish. That is just going at a pace where motorcycles don't have the ability. They can get to top speeds pretty quickly, but braking and maneuverability at that speed is absolutely, it's pure madness. I mean, you could be a very cautious driver in your vehicle and do your shoulder check and proceed to put on your indicator to make a lane change. And a motorcyclist can be on you in a heartbeat going 173. So, of course, the motorcycle gets impounded. 
right, the driver gets a ticket. But I wonder what the ticket should be and the length of the impoundment and, you know, the potential to suspend someone's license for an inordinate amount, an inordinate amount of time. You know, if they're willing to go that speed, one hefty ticket is probably not going to rein in their want to really crank on the, uh, the accelerator and, uh, or the handlebar and go that speed again at some point in the future, thinking that there's no cops around. For me, maybe it's 10 years with no license. Is that a bit overly harsh? I don't think so, considering I have to share the roadway, and so do my sons and my wife and my family and my buddies, my friends share the roadway with people who are willing to do that, whether it be behind the wheel of a car or on the seat of a motorcycle. All right, let's go. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, 273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the program. Get tons of questions every single day about when people can anticipate getting their carbon tax rebate. It's called a climate incentive rebate program, I believe, uh, formally. So if you are set up with CRA to get a direct deposit, you're going to get your rebate on the 21st of this month. If you are not set up with a direct deposit, you're going to have your check by the end of the month, says the government. So the checks are going to be mailed out. So it depends on where you live in the country. You will get it by the end of the month. So direct deposit, you can anticipate your your carbon tax rebate on the 21st of this month. And that's in a few days. And someone asked, what were we talking about with the Canada Mercy Response Benefit and the Canada Mercy Wage Subsidy and what the problems were? The problems have been pretty clear. Because the little guy, and there's been hundreds of individuals that have fought back against the government in court about whether or not they were actually ineligible and what the ruling has been made by the government or the opportunity for a second review. But the issue was, with the little guy is just easy pickings, right? It's easy enough to evaluate your tax return this year and uh, whether or not you were ineligible for a serve or to hold back some monies. Okay, and that's what they're doing. And much to the chagrin of folks who, for instance, if you were trying to apply for unemployment insurance and got moved into CERB, and consequently you had a tax problem created by something that you didn't even apply for, then I think there's a problem there. The issue that I was speaking to is that we go after the little guy, no problem. But with the corporations, not so much. The country's auditor general in a report has pointed out the numbers of monies that went out the door to a variety of individuals and businesses and what the government's doing about it. The AG says that some $4.6 billion, a tidy sum of money, was paid out to Canadians who were ineligible for the CERB and they're getting a clawed back. On the other hand, CRA says, well, even though the AG, and they dispute the findings of the Auditor General, no real specifics as to where they think the AG is wrong, but 15-ish billion dollars paid out to corporations who were ineligible for the emergency wage subsidy. And CRA says, eh, it's not worth it to go after them. 15 billion, not worth it, 4.6, 100% worth it. Not so sure I understand that particular bit of math, but that was the point we were making about CERB versus the CEWS. All right, let's go to line number one. Rod, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how are you doing today? Not bad, I suppose. How about you? No, not too bad. You're just sitting here at the dentist's office going and get some dental work done. Very well. See, anyways, uh, Patty, you were talking about speeds on motorcycles. I'm in my mid-60s, and... Uh, I used to be one of those guys that used to love high speeds on motorcycles and that. And uh, this is going back into Alberta when I was living there. And uh, I had my Magna V65 up to 220 kilometers an hour. And I tell you, that's uh, that's ridiculous. Uh, and I, I sat back after it. I looked at it. You know, uh, if a prairie dog or a gopher ran out and hit my front wheel, chances are I wouldn't be here on the phone talking to you today. 
You absolutely would not be. I mean, you could even strike uh, a big rock and have the same outcome. Well, that's just if you get into a high-speed wobble and there's absolutely nothing you can do. Now, hitting these speeds, there's one other thing that uh, you didn't mention. Uh, when you hit these high speeds like that, you always seem like you get a, a tunnel vision because you do not have time to even look what's coming off the side of the road at you. Uh, if there was a cross road or whatever, you would not see that vehicle coming across because you're going way too fast uh, to see that. Uh, I don't know if you remember the old song about the hot rod Lincoln. Telephone poles looked like picket fences. That's exactly what it was. That at that speed, you cannot uh, comprehend or, or uh, uh, look at anything that's going to come in off, off the side. Uh, you know, you get T-bone. There's nothing you can do about it. And I, I understand the uh, you know the thirst for speed. I think most young drivers will. You know, possibly take a chance with the loud pedal and go faster than they know they should. But even in a r regular passenger vehicle, adjusting your path at high speed is mm -hmm. difficult and possibly or maybe impossible at certain speeds in certain types of vehicles. But when you yeah. talk about a motorcycle, there is just no saving grace. There's nowhere to go. Well, and anything where you get punted off, you're, you're done. Not at all. Uh, a friend of mine, they're back at Rocky Mountain House, uh, he pulled out from a stop sign, didn't see nothing coming. All of a sudden, the motorcycle was hit him in the side, and the guy was killed. And uh, that guy was doing a rate of speed, but Robert still lost his driver's license for six months because of that accident. And uh, just because he said he pulled out undue safe from the stop sign, but it was clear. So the bike had to be doing some speed to be upon him at that, at that time. So there's absolutely nothing that... Uh, that he could have done to prevent it. And with motorcyclists, yes, slow down, especially uh, currently after spring hit, lots of sand and gravel on the road, and uh, you got no control if you start going into a slide, you're, you're done. Um, yeah, I mean, you can lay down your motorcycle doing 50 or 60 and get pretty busted up. And I totally get the thrill of your knees in the breeze, and mm -hmm. I appreciate being on a bike too. But it's that story in particular, 173 kilometers an hour. Not yes. only are you risking your own life, uh, but everyone around you. It's just well, crazy it's, it's, speed. You know, it's, it's crazy. You know, I, I sit back every now and think about that time that uh, uh, a friend and I, we took off on our bikes and we left the missus back on their bikes and that to head up 22 from Caroline up to Rocky Mountain House. And uh, I tell you, that's 20 kilometers. That was the fastest 20 kilometers I've ever done. But I kind of shook my head at uh, when we got there. And I said to Gary, I said, you know, this is crazy. There we, there was no reason why we should have done those speeds. But we did, eh? And just thank the good Lord that we happened to make it to our destination without getting in, uh, in, into some world of hurt and that. So, so yes, uh, bikes do travel fast. Uh, they can be in a pond uh, traffic before you even know it. And uh, so I just uh, want to tell the bikers and that, uh, like I say, I'm, a, I'm an old biker. Just drive safe out there. Be aware of your surroundings. And, uh, you know, cool, cool is no speed, but uh, ride safe to where you got to go. I appreciate the time this morning, Rod. Good luck at the dentist. Yep. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, I mean, one of my boys had, had a bike for a few summers. Thankfully, he doesn't have one any longer. Look, I completely understand, and I enjoyed my time on a motorcycle, but it did give me pause for concern every time I heard him crank that 
bike heading out for a spin with these buddies. Anyway, let's keep going here. It was back in June of 2017. There was uh, uh, Towards Recovery was first table, some 54 recommendations. We waited months after the government told us it'd be mere weeks back in March before the final report and evaluation was delivered to the public. Now that's been done. It's raised a ton of questions. Yes, there are some uh, areas where the government can say, we have achieved some successes. We have advanced the cause of access to mental health. But there's still a lack of detail to give cold comfort for many people, whether it be opposition members and or mental health advocates in the community at large. One such advocate joins us on line number two. That's Christy. Good morning, Christy. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How's it going? Okay. How about you? I'm all right. Um, just calling about the Towards Recovery evaluation. Um, I've been listening to everybody commenting on it over the last week with a lot of interest. I listened to Paul Dinn and um, Minister Osborne on air last week, and I was, I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm really discouraged with the evaluation. I waited for it for a really long time. Um, I understand these things take time, but it was just, I had high hopes because of the wait. You know, I thought, okay, it's taken a year and a half. There's, this is going to be, you know, very detailed, and I don't feel it was detailed. And when I heard uh, Minister Osborne saying that it was disingenuous to say that the things weren't completed, that discouraged me even more just because, you know, I went through that list of recommendations and I have like little stars besides the one beside the ones where I'm like, well, this doesn't seem completed. Where's the data? And especially because they talk at the beginning of the evaluation about all the data that they used. And then I feel like they didn't they didn't provide it. And I'm I, I don't want to seem ungrateful for the work that they have done because I think they've done really wonderful things with doorways and the fact teams, but I don't know how anybody can look at this evaluation and say, oh yeah, all 54 were done. Do you think that you can look at it and say that? No. As I've admitted, I mean, I looked through it. I was waiting for it. Uh, it was highly anticipated by me. I try to keep mental health and addictions on the front burner, so this was going to be an important document. I was a little bit, one, confused, and number two, underwhelmed. Let's start with some specifics. You know, if they're talking about moving towards 9% of the healthcare budget to be spent on mental health, and I asked the minister specifically about that, not that money's the be-all and end-all, but it's a good measuring stick anyway. So it was in May or something of last year. They were in and around 7.6%. The minister says they can't really nail down whether or not they can say with uh, any certainty that they're spending 9% of the budget because there might be other departments like education and justice and child, youth, and seniors that may indeed be offering some mental health supports outside of his portfolio. But they've had a long time to put that together. So if we're going to start with one of their key areas where they are, I'll say, applauding themselves, is the budgetary, the line item. But they really don't even know where we are there. That's a good place to start. What do you think? I 100% agree. I mean, I had done some A-tips on updates on the towards recovery. Um, and I got them for every year up to last May. And in every single one, I believe that they had updated numbers. And I find it very odd that this year, when the evaluation is coming out that is public, suddenly they don't know. And suddenly they have to ask people to put numbers together. Why were we waiting so long if a very basic, and yes, I understand that it's not basic, but it seemed basic on all the other um, documents from every year before, it should have been clear. 
And I find it extremely frustrating because you're right. It's one of those things that we can look at and say, was it done? Was it not? But I don't think that was the only thing that was unclear. I mean, there's one here that says that they should have um, two permanent full-time psychiatrists uh, to ensure psychiatric coverage for Labrador. And in the evaluation, it talks about how they have four as needed on call. And that seems a little bit odd to me because do we have the two full, um, full-time full psychiatrists? I don't think so based on that report. But again, you have to keep going back and forth. And I don't understand how we can look at these recommendations and say, oh, yeah, let's put a check mark. One of the issues specifically that you advocate for for weeks on end, I don't know where we are, 130-odd weeks or something you've been talking about this, is long-term uh, access to long-term mental health care. And I think I asked the minister, and maybe asked Mr. Din as well, about the specifics here, because you might think it means one thing, the minister might think it's another thing, Paul Din another, and then up and down the line. But unless we have a consensus or a general understanding of what we're actually talking about, then it's going to have to be ach- to achieve it. So when you say it, what do you mean? So... The longer I speak openly about mental health, the more complicated I think that answer is. But I've been ready for it because I heard you ask both of them that. Um, And for me, Dr. Lada said, and I believe it was 2020 or 2021, that the number one thing was housing. And I have come to believe that a lot because I think that until you address housing, you are not going to address the need for long-term mental health care because everything is so focused on getting housing for people as they should and addressing that that I believe everything is falling behind. I can tell you that for me long-term mental health care means I think we need more fact teams on different levels. I think that fact teams respond to a specific type of group. I think that there's different um people with different needs who probably could use the fact teams, but it's only reserved for like the most needed right now. I can tell you that I think long-term psychiatry, you know, the people in Western health were told that they were losing their psychiatrist. I got a message from one of Dr. Lada's patients yesterday telling me that they have not been contacted about losing him, that they get a voicemail when they call, they have to depend on their GP. They don't know where they are. I think we, that people with chronic mental illness deserve long-term psychiatry. I think family support is huge to providing that. My husband, you know, he is, plays a huge role in taking care of me. He has almost no support. He had a mental health first aid course that was very kindly um, donated by Steve Tizard. But that was from the kindness of someone's uh, heart. He didn't get it from the system. And I think Two, therapy is so huge. You know, the the wait lines for therapy is so long. It's so focused on short term. I get mine privately. I think that if people need access to long-term lifetime therapy and they have a doctor's note, they need to integrate it some way that it can be covered by MCP. I think addressing the stigma. I think the stigma around serious mental illness is is so crucial. I think it's there. I feel it every single day. I feel like it's getting worse um, because it's all around wellness right now, which is good, but people don't understand the difference between wellness and illness. And 
So it is complicated, but those are just some highlights of long-term mental health care. But honestly, I think until we address housing, they're never going to get to those things. Agreed. Continuity of care is important in your physical health, so why wouldn't it be exactly that in your mental health care? Okay, so there's a couple of other uh, issues I'd like to broach. One is, you know, people who are psychologists, and they read through this report, and then they say out loud, where am I? And with whether or not they've already felt undervalued by the system, and here we are with the guiding principle document, I suppose, the government will use towards recovery as, and they're not even in it. What do you think that means? I, uh, I actually listened with interest to Dr. Janine Hubbard yesterday because she said that they have long advocated for better health insurance programs for personal and employer-funded um, insurance and that they didn't hear anything about it, and yet that's checked on there. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not going to say, you know, what they should be said here, but I do think that it's deeply disturbing that there's no mention of that, especially with that mass exodus that was reported on last year i i'm worried about it and i i want to hear from more psychologists about what they think because their input is so valuable you know i'm a person with lived experience i'm not someone who works in the system and i think we need everyone who has the experience speaking up about this yeah we're going to reach out to uh particularly dr tanya lentz who spoke to this at length many times and we'll see if we can get her back on today Last one, and I, I tried to craft this question to the minister about how we measure success. If we're talking about hip and knee replacements and the backlog or the wait list and expansion of uh, operations of the St. Anthony and Carbonaire, eventually we're going to be able to say, well, here's how it worked. Inside the world of mental health, I'm not so sure there's a hard and fast metrics that we can lean on. So now we talk about the advent or the increased usage of virtual care, and it has been very real. 250% increase for these types of services since 2016-17. Mr. Din asked what I think is a very fundamentally sound question. Are those numbers good, bad, encouraging, or discouraging? I'm not even sure what I think of it, and I've given it a great deal of thought. What do you think? I think that it speaks to the changing world that we're in. I think that COVID changed everything. I think that mental wellness is being addressed um, very well. And for me, it says that we live in a much different world than we did in 2017 and that a lot more people um, either need access uh, to care for their mental wellness or no longer feel a stigma around that. Um, you know, we live in a very anxiety-inducing world. I think that's just, it's the reality. I think even if you're healthy and don't have a mental illness, watching places go on fire and flood and everything like that is affecting people's mental wellness a lot. And so when I see those increase in numbers, I think about a changing world and how are we going to meet that need? Because to be completely honest, I think a lot of the programs like Doorways and Bridge the Gap is extremely good. I think it came at a good time for people who are struggling with that. But once again, people with the illness are getting pushed, pushed back and, so I can't speak, you know, like I'm not an expert, but to me, when I see those numbers, I think we are in a much different place and have a lot of different needs than we did in 2017, which they couldn't have predicted, but, you know, we still have to catch up. Another component of that is, you know, we understand what the world once looked like with access to a, 
a therapist or a counselor, a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I wonder how we measured if people got what they needed and wanted from a virtual care offering and whether or not that has anything to do with their continuity of care long term because we once had a landscape where we, we understood it a little bit better and we could measure successes somewhat. With this, because it's new, because it's different, I don't even know if we've created a way to figure out whether or not it's actually working versus simply capture the numbers of people who are accessing it. Yeah, and I don't I don't know if we have either and I think that's something that they should they should work on. We need to know how it's working. You know, they say at the beginning of the report, we've done these surveys, we've done all this. Okay, show them to us. Show us how this is good, you know? And if we don't have the the things in place to know the outcomes, then how are we working on developing them? Because we can't let people keep slipping through the cracks. It it is happening over and over again and I think it's still happening in a really, really big way. I appreciate the time as usual, Christy. Keep it up. Thank you so much, Patty. I, I know I say it every time, but I think you are a huge resource for this province, and I appreciate um, everything you do more than you have any idea. I appreciate so thank that. You. Stay in touch. I will. Thanks. Okay. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, you know, maybe lost a little bit in this conversation because it is the five-year action plan for mental health and addictions. And it's easy enough to talk about mental health more often than possibly addictions because people have a baked-in thought about what being addicted means and who are the people who are becoming addicted, who are, are, are addicted, and the options to deal with addiction and or to get in bef in front of maybe before the addiction becomes a death spiral. We just don't do enough about addictions here in the province. And you know what? Again, some of the conversation, it's not necessarily about policy, it's about politics. So for me doing what we can to help those who want help, because not everybody wants help, but if we are not getting the type of help in front of people who need it and want it, then we're probably just turning a blind eye. Because addictions are very much thought of, you know, compared to mental health. Mental health, mental illness, mental wellness, all three different things, which I think we do a bit of a poor job breaking down, so we all, including myself, have a better understanding of what they all mean. And, you know, you could have people in your family and or colleagues at work or friends in your social circle who have some type of mental illness. In the world of addictions, and we, we may see people have the people turn their back on folks who have a mental illness, and we may see it compromise opportunities for gainful, meaningful employment. But addictions, so many people seem to think, well, these are simply the down-and-out nuisances who we can't do anything for them, they can't be saved, they can't be spared. How do we try to change the water on those particular beings? Because addictions is a huge problem in the country and a huge problem in this province. So, you know, while we focus in on the mental health aspect of that document, maybe more conversation and understanding of what addictions mean from stigma to treatment to a pathway out probably should be part of the conversation a bit more, and maybe that's on me. Let's take a break. When we come back, the topic is up to you. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Patty, my friend, it's nice to speak with you today. Nice to have you on. Great. Patty, at first, I want to echo the last caller's comments. You really are truly a friend to the people of this province. And, you know, you do get recognition for it, but certainly not enough. Patty, thank you. I appreciate the kind words. Thank you. Patty, uh, I also heard another caller today and last week 
uh, that was, you know, saying uh, about safety on the roads and, and things like that. There was one gentleman who I called in, the mechanic, had charged him $8,000. I feel bad for that uh, seller. But Patty, on, uh, in May month, I had just had a service done on my vehicle. I had the oil changed on. And after I had left that mechanic uh, and got on the highway, the underbody that was removed to do the oil change decided that it wasn't secure and that it was going to come off. Now, Patty, you did give out a number to that uh, man, I believe. You did follow up with him with a number to complain about that mechanic. I was wondering if you could share that number so I can maybe see if this mechanic shop can get looked into for the safety of everybody else. Sure. No, I mean, people go through the obvious complaint systems of the Better Business Bureau, because, and it's helpful because that company will be flagged. So people who maybe check with the BBB before they, you know, hire a contractor or they use a, a, a certain garage. So I would do that. The real home for consumer complaints in the province is at the provincial government, at the Department of Digital Government and Service NL. They actually have a consumer affairs uh, division inside there. So I think that's what you're referring to. That might be, that might be the number I gave him. Yeah, that certainly may be the number you give them, Patty. Uh, do you have that there again now for me? Yeah, sure, I can uh, provide that. Now, the general line at the Digital Government Service NL is 729 mm-hmm. And when you call them, you simply ask to be put forward to Consumer Affairs. I appreciate that, Patty. And just before I do close off, Patty, uh, I also want to say thank you. You know, uh, you really are a true friend of the province, and uh, I regret I didn't call you in sooner. Before they chose uh, the nominations for the election, I think you would have been a true asset to the province uh, with the things and the intelligence you got on the various subjects for all issues that people are dealing in the project uh, in the province, from the boondoggle in Muscraft Falls to the homelessness to our poor brothers, sisters, and neighbors, Patty, who are going hungry. And I believe a premier in our province now may not have that same intelligence and the wide, uh, you know, the wide uh, stories from the common people that, that you can go by if you had got elected in the province. Patty, I think you're a knight, a knight to the province, and that's that's one thing for sure. And look, I, I appreciate it. I'm not everyone's cup of tea, and nor do I try to be, because that's a fool's errand, right? So I, I do appreciate that, and I haven't put my hat in the ring, so no opportunity to, for me to be elected. If someone had asked me 10 years ago, do you think you'll run? I would have said yes. Now, I'm not so sure about that anymore. It doesn't Patty, sound it like... It eight years of your life that will benefit the province the most. I thank you for your time. I appreciate yours. Good luck with it. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, went a little bit long with Christy on purpose because she's a terrific guest with uh, great knowledge. Stats Canada's out now with the most recent inflation numbers. All right. It's hard to know whether or not I'm feeling any of the impact of the inflation tumbling. Now, inflation in June dropped all the way to 2.8%. That's encouraging. But the problem for most of us, now some energy costs are down. Okay, I get it. But grocery stores, uh, food inflation remains at 9.1% year over year. Slightly faster than in May. But, you know, it's fine to tell me it's 2.8%. But like I've mentioned many times, we all have certain leanings on one issue or another. Some people will be strictly running by the playbook or their favorite or preferred political party. Whatever the case may be, but we all share at least one thing in common, and that is we got to eat. And at 9.1% year over year inside the grocery stores, brutal. All right, we just talked about the absence of mentions of the role that psychologists play. In the province, we've long had an issue and an outmigration of psychologists, problem inside the world of uh, mentoring for graduating psychologists. And now, not to be mentioned in the Towards Recovery Report, 
the guiding document regarding mental health and addictions, they're not there. We wonder what psychologists think about it. We'll get a commentary come from uh, Dr. Tanya Lentz. She's a registered psychologist. She's up after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's uh, talk a little, bit mo- a little bit more about Towards Recovery. Join us on line number three is Dr. Tanya Lentz. She has a PhD in clinical neuropsychology and clinical psychology. Good morning, Dr. Lentz. You're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Appreciate being here. We've had many chats about different healthcare uh, uh, disciplines, whether it be in mental health or physical health. Repeatedly, we've been lucky enough to have uh, Dr. Hubbard on the program, so we're glad you made time for us today. There's been long-running problems with your profession and your professionals, what it means to live and work in this province. Now we go to this document, which I suppose government will consider the guiding document, the guiding principle of how we approach mental health and addictions, and psychologists, not there. Your thoughts? Yeah, it was, um, to be fair, the entire document was a little bit um, underwhelming in terms of details, but certainly it was really disappointing to see the lack of commitment uh, for psychology. Uh, Definitely there were uh, mentions of physicians and nurses needing to be um, recruited in 100%, that's true, but just to leave out psychologists entirely um, as a discipline, I think just reflects the government's perspective on the discipline as a whole. So what do you think it says? Does it mean that you're undervalued? Does it mean that you don't uh, find yourselves playing a significant role in the envelope of mental health, which is ridiculous if that's the case. So what specifically do you think it says? Uh, I think it's one of the things where um, there is a definite undervaluing and um, a lack of understanding of what psychologists do. So psychologists are specifically trained in terms of assessment um, and diagnosis of uh, mental illness as well as other conditions, um, but then also are trained to provide a wide range of treatments. And I think that piece there um, does seem to be a lack of understanding on the government's part. Okay, so let's take it from 100,000 feet back down to everyday interaction between your patients and their psychologist. People think, well, what I need is a psychiatrist. How and when would a psychologist be exactly the healthcare professional need versus what people turn to for the MD, the psychiatrist? So certainly, um, you know, my psychiatrist colleagues are extremely talented. Um, They do provide medications um, as well as some do provide uh, psychotherapy. Uh, whereas a psychologist um, can provide uh, complete assessments of a wide range of conditions and mental illnesses, as well as providing a wide range of therapy. So that's where um, there's a bit of a distinct difference between the two. I should have probably started with some of the issues that we discussed with Dr. Hubbard in the past about some of the issues that are already confronting psychologists in the province. And then we'll talk about how maybe your lack of consideration inside towards recovery may make a terrible or bad situation, possibly a terrible situation. So what are some of the concerns you've been talking about with the government and on the public airwaves so that we can then take it to what this report probably means? Certainly, um, one of the biggest issues, um, I previously uh, was employed in the public sector, and a major issue was the lack of involvement of psychologists in a lot of program planning uh, so that uh, it was realistic as well as most efficient when it came to psychology services. 
as well as not acknowledging um, that psychologists, you need to have them in the public sector for things such as supervision and training of new psychologists as well as other medical professionals. Um, and then certainly just in terms of having adequate resources and being respected in the profession, I think in the public sector are some of the bigger issues that are presented. What are some of the resources that are absent that you're talking about? Uh, so certainly, um, even just my previous position, uh, so the neuropsychology service at the Janeway is now absent um, because they haven't been able to recruit another professional for that position. So what that would mean in practical terms is that, uh, say, a child with a brain injury would not necessarily get a neuropsychological assessment prior to going back to school or to monitor uh, their cognitive abilities. So if someone's having extreme difficulties with attention, with memory, uh, with their ability to kind of stay organized and so on, which are all really important for school, they wouldn't be able to gain access to that. And that's a similar problem in the adult sector for neuropsychology services as well. And same thing with like dementia assessments um, in terms of psychological assessments and so on. Um, and then in terms of treatment, we don't have enough psychologists in the public sector anymore as well. Just to pick up on the neuropsychology, specifically at the Janeway. Mm -hmm. So for that ongoing monitoring or assessment before returning to school, who does that now fall to? A psychologist maybe working with the department or is it uh, basically their family doctor if they're lucky enough to have one? At this point, um, certainly what we've heard from a lot of patients is um, families who can afford it uh, will go into the private sector um, and contact our clinic. Um, but for a lot of families, they're kind of getting piecemeal assessments done or, um, you know, school staff are trying to uh, do the best that they can uh, for those particular students to try to plan. Um, but it makes it much more difficult for the families if they're going in without that information. When it comes to the mentoring and additional training upon graduation, what has that meant in real terms for the number of psychologists who have left for that tutelage versus being able to stay and get it here? So really what it means is in practicality terms is that uh, we are not going to be a place where people want to come train simply because we don't have the supervision available. Um, appropriate supervision when people are in their final year of uh, so their residency year, so the year before they graduate or the year following graduation is you need to have a supervisor who's got the time to be able to go through different ethical concerns with you, different uh, situations with you, be able to review your uh, records and, and so on, uh, as well as potentially teach you new skills. So all of those things get lost when we don't have psychologists in the public sector. I guess it's, you know, difficult for someone to answer this question because you can't represent everybody. For some people, their concern would be money. They can put up with not being content or not being happy or not being able to strike a work-life balance. For others, maybe money is the last one of their concerns, you know, based on their family mm -hmm. setup and how much money is coming in the yeah. door from whoever. But when we talk about, you know, untenable circumstances, if I remember correctly, is the term that you've used. You know, mm -hmm. what does happiness look like on the job? Because some people say, look, you know, if you're lucky enough to have a job that makes you happy, good for you. But a lot of jobs have a lot of unhappy employees or malcontents mm -hmm. inside the workforce. Yeah. So what does happiness look like for a psychologist? And how is it not being achieved? Like, what's missing? Well, I find, honestly, um, you know, certainly, yeah, there are definitely people who um, money is an issue. And 100%, I mean, I put in so many hours that I didn't get paid for, um, which 
creates a strain um, for sure. But honestly, for me, it was that, um, you know, my wait lists were going to four years or more because I was covering two and a half positions. And so I was seeing more and more patients who were suicidal, who were in critical distress. And everyone else kind of got bumped. And then I would see them go into distress because they've been waiting so long. And so it was just this nonstop of everyone is in distress. And then I wasn't allowed to make changes to make things more efficient. I wasn't allowed to make changes to be able to uh, see people more efficiently. So it's kind of one of those things where there's a really high expectation, I think, for psychologists in terms of output, but then very little uh, respect when it comes to just even listening to their ideas about how we could do things better. With those concerns and this report, how do you think it's further going to exasperate the problems that we already have trying to retain psychologists, let alone try to re recruit them given the absence of training opportunities? Well, honestly, I think uh, things might get worse. Uh, just the lack of commitment in the mental health plan to recruit psychologists and to make the work environment better for, honestly, all healthcare employees, but certainly for psychologists in particular, I think people are going to look for opportunities elsewhere, whether that's in the private sector or at a province. Um, we are in high demand, and I think the province really needs to start taking a look at what it's going to take to recruit people. And it really, a lot of it is make sure that you're a place that people want to work. Makes sense to me. And, of course, we maybe a lot of people focus in on recruiting, but unless we retain what we have, recruiting mm -hmm. becomes even possibly unmanageable. Uh, final yep. thoughts to you, Dr. Lentz, before we say mm -hmm. goodbye. Yep. Um, honestly, I really hope that the province rethinks their approach to uh, mental health and mental illness, um, as well as addiction. I think we need to really get serious about it and start talking and listening to patients and providers because they're the ones who really uh, know what the problems are and how we can potentially fix it. I appreciate you making time for the show this morning, doctor. Thank you. All right. Anytime. Take care. Bye-bye. Dr. Bye. Tanya Lentz is a clinical psychologist and a clinical neuropsychologist. Imagine that discipline not available in either the adult side of the hospital and or in the Janeway. Really? Let's take a break. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Carmel. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. I'm just wondering if you would have an address or a phone number for the free water testing for the arsenic, etc. Having difficulty getting information. Okay, so they they basically do the testing for gladia, lead, arsenic, uh, chlorination, what have you. So it depends on where you are. Are you in the city? Uh, Torbay. You're in Torbay. So you can drop off your water sample to the Miller Center on Forest Road. Oh, so that would be just a regular one then, is it? I thought... From open line, I thought I heard that there was the government was doing a free one for like the extra testing. I think that's part of the basic testing inside the world of drinking water at the Miller Center. I don't know it to be any different. I don't think I, I, 
I wasn't on the show when they talked about additional free testing at the provincial government, but I tell you what, if you simply call the Miller Center and ask, they'll know. They're the people who do the testing. Uh, well, it's one of the drop-off sites. Then it goes to the public health, uh, the public testing laboratory. Okay. Okay. I can do that. And let me know if that's uh, if that helped. And if not, I'll try to figure something else out for you. Super. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. No problem. Thanks, Bye-bye Carmen. Now. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, if anyone in the newsroom knows that there was a very specific arsenic-focused additional testing program brought forward by the province, I don't know about it, but if you do, let's talk about it. Okay, let's go to line number one and say good morning to the PC member for exploits. That's Pleeman Forsey. Good morning, Pleeman. You're on the air. Good morning, Petty. Good morning to you. Good morning, Petty. I, uh, I wanted to touch in on certainly the uh, critical situation we're in right now with the uh, water bomber situation, you know, the high high temperatures we're having and the... Uh, and the extreme, uh, you know, fire index, and uh, we're uh, we're having trouble to get those uh, those planes in the air. You know, we've uh, we've been through this all last year. L- last year, through an ATIP, you know, we found out that uh, there was planes unable to fly because of uh, shortages in pilots and uh, being unserviceable. And to be in this situation now, Patty, this time of year, uh, you know, at, from a forest fire last year, you know, they, they had lots lots of time to. Uh, you know, address those situations, but it seems like we're into the uh, same situation again this year. You know, not only have we we were short one plane, uh, now we're down to four planes. Now we're short on pilots. Uh, we've got a big problem on our hands regards to the fire protection. Hundred percent. So, just so I know what's going on here, we all know the issues regarding the fifth water bomber and the damage that it sustained and the lack of commitment one way or the other from the government to either replace it or to uh, fix it or whatever. Then with the four. And people will be concerned about where they are and whether or not one should be in Labrador. But now I'm down to one. Is it that it's all based on pilots, or is there a maintenance issue with one or two of them? What do we know? Because I'm trying to, I'm having a hard time getting a breakdown. Well, through uh, through an ATIP last year, we we did learn that uh, you know they were short pilots, you know, unable to fly in regards to crew, or they were they were unserviceable. Unserviceable would mean uh, that there there would be no mechanics there to uh, you know service the planes as they fly. So they're, pro- they're probably short on on mechanics as well. So they so they got a they got a full fleet that's that's being uh, you know uh, they're, they're relying on luck to get those planes in the air and relying on luck that the forest fires are not going to be. Uh, in the state that they've they've been in in the in the past, especially this season and last year as well, so uh, you know that, that's the problem we have. We we, we need to get these. Uh, we need to get uh, uh, recruitment. We need to get uh, employees in, in place, especially staff, and and get the four water bombers at least. What we got here to get those in the air. I mean, say we need those now. They're priority to us right now. What's a full complement to pilots? I've looked at three different areas for numbers, and I've come up with three different numbers. Whether it be 12 pilots to operate at full capacity, that would be for the four water bombers. And someone told me that we have eight positions that are currently filled in the province versus the 12 required. Do you happen to have any better or more accurate numbers than those? Well, I, 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 you know, I'm going with news releases as well, and what I'm hearing, I, I, do, well, I would, we would want 12, you know, Petty, uh, with four water bombers. It takes uh, one, one, one captain and one co-pilot to fly those planes. So if we had eight, eight, eight pilots right now, we could fly those planes, uh, you know, 
together at one time. That's not given, you know, given given the time that they need, certainly have rest time and flying time, uh, sick periods. So eight right now don't give us the amount of people, the amount of pilots that we need to keep those keep those uh, planes in the air right now because eight don't do it. Some may be sick, as is what's what's happening in, the, in this situation right now. Uh, the minister hopes that we, as as the sick sick leave or sick time is used up or, or they're back, that uh, that will uh, you know relieve some of the problem. It might, but I, I, it, it can happen again as well. So yeah, so you would you would want at least 12, 12 pilots to be able to maintain those on, on a on a regular basis. The difference between eight and twelve four is: Do we know if this is extended sick leaves or these are pilots that are really in high demand and very? I mean, the performance that they put forward is extraordinary. The precision with which they work is incredible. So do we know if any of these water bomber pilots have been enticed to move or have they, you know, just simply been sick or there's something going on? Because I'm, tr- I'm not really completely understanding the issue here because we talk about recruiting. But if we can't even retain what we have, then recruiting just is backfilling. We maybe never get more than eight. So do we know any of the water bomber pilots have left for Quebec or Nova Scotia or British Columbia or whatever the case may be? I can't fully answer that, Patty, but I know uh, uh, Nate brought brought up, brought that issue up uh, a couple of weeks ago. That you know that uh, they were able to go uh, elsewhere in Canada and uh, get you know for higher pay and uh, and and be uh, you know take take jobs elsewhere. So uh, you know we we can't be you know right now uh, what we need is more pilots, of course, because we need to get those uh, planes in the air. But we need to we need to be able to uh, you, you know be adequately. Uh, address the situations that they need you know whether it's uh, whether it's pay more pilots or whatnot we uh, we certainly need our pilots here so we we have to sit down uh, you know i did hear the former minister on an interview uh, i think it was uh, one of the news channels anyway uh, say that we've been uh, we've been at the beginning of some good conversation that was in june patty like last year where we were in the same situation and now this it, only in june they're at the beginning of of some good conversation like i would have thought last year in now they would they would have had some of this rectified yeah you would think so uh in addition I've, i'm still looking for firm numbers about the numbers of force fighters that uh, uh, firefighters who are working on the ground how many of them did not get through their physical exam and what that means are they currently out of the loop, or they're being used, or they're working on their training, or they're going to retest because that further complicates a forest fire firefighter compliment. It does, Patty. You know, our our compliment, our our forest fire protection, uh, really needs upgrades. Uh, really needs attention. You know, they, the government should have learned last year. We should have been doing more to uh, more to retain. You know, more to address the problems of the for, of our forest fire situation. Especially this year. Now again, we're in the hot, dry cl- climate again. You know, we got heat waves coming through central Newfoundland. We got heat waves, heat waves coming through basically all Newfoundland. And uh, you know, our compliment needs to needs to be brought up to forest fire protection. We've been saying this for a full year, Patty, ever since last year. You know, we, we, uh, there was some uh, things that we, we learned last year, and government should have learned it as well, Patty. We should, we should be in a better, better, better situation with regards to our forest fire protection. Appreciate the time, Playman. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, Carmel, if you're still listening, you know, call the Miller Center is the go-to for uh, water to be tested. And this is not a new program. It's as old as late last year. And there's kits available free of charge from the Department of Digital Government and Service Personnel doing specific testing like arsenic, uranium, and fluoride. 
So you can't pick them up from that department. There's been some 3,000 test kits have been distributed. 1,000 samples have been tested. So, Carmel, if you're listening, you can indeed simply call the Department of Digital Government and Service NL, of which I gave a number out earlier, in addition to calling the Miller Center. The Department of Provincially is 729-4834. Let me know how you make out Carmel. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Thelma's there to respond to Dr. Lenst. And then the executive director of St. John's Minor Baseball is Kristen Coley. She also joins us this past weekend, the fourth annual Mike Buist, the classic. Of course, Mike was a big driving force in the world of minor baseball. So we'll talk all things baseball with Kristen and Thelma right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the executive director of St. John's Minor Baseball. That's Kristen Coley. Good morning, Kristen. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for making time. Perfect. I mean, right off the bat, you know, when my boys played minor baseball, it was a little bit difficult to keep them engaged because baseball, I think, is a beautiful game that I watch a lot of. But how do we approach making sure that children in particular keep engaged? Because for some, they love it. They can't get enough of it. They don't ever take off their glove. For others, it's picking grass and kicking around dirt and what have you as they try to wait for some action. So what's the approach, the philosophy that baseball takes? Yeah, so that's definitely a challenge. Um, I think it's more unique to our sport than to some other sports. Um, you know, a lot of sports are able to start, I guess, fundamental programs at, you know, the age of 24 months, it, it, which is a big struggle for baseball. So uh, the traditional, I guess, t-ball programs of the past are not something that Baseball Canada or the Blue Jays have been investing in the last couple of years. So they've switched programming into what we now call the Rally Cap program, which is designed for ages eight and under. And it's a, a lot less game-based because we know the game of baseball can be pretty slow, uh, but it's a lot more drill-based. So trying to get kids moving more, keeping group sizes smaller, trying to engage them on the fundamental baseball skills as opposed to games at that age. Uh, great. look, And I absolutely love baseball. I like some of the moves they made at the majors to try to speed up the game a little bit. I think they were long overdue. What can Absolutely. you tell us about Mike Buist? He was a friend of mine. I knew Mike, and I knew what he meant to the sport of baseball. Not originally from this province, but certainly made himself a big part of baseball in this province. Absolutely, yes. So I was very lucky to consider Mike a friend and a mentor for, I'm going to say, nine years. Um, and Mike was originally from Hamilton and grew up playing baseball there, made his way through some of the minor league systems with the Mets and the Cardinals. Um, and he's had a very interesting career. He's kind of done a little bit of everything. So he worked a lot on the tourism side. Um, he worked with Labatt's. He actually used to be a statistician for the Jays. Um, he came on, was doing some stuff with the Briar through Labatt's, uh, and then eventually did some tourism things in the province, um, including the Cupid's 400. So he had a very interesting career, and then uh, later in his career, he decided that he wanted to come back to baseball and came on as our executive director in 2013, which was great because, you know, he had so much experience in some of uh, these, like, event planning-type uh, roles. So it really, I guess, modernized some of the things that we were doing locally, which has been an awesome uh, investment into our programs. And uh, as a due acknowledgement of Mike's impact to modern baseball, we just had the fourth annual Mike Buist Classic. How'd it go? It was great. Yeah, we had great weather, which always makes for a great weekend. Uh, we had 52 teams participating, so it was our biggest event ever. Um, we had some great partners with the City of St. John's who did an excellent job getting the fields ready. Uh, we um, partnered with the Technoplex to use some of their fields because obviously we need some additional fields to uh, make through those weekends. And definitely a special shout-out to our staff. Um, you know, long, hot days out working, and we all know 
the struggles that associations have to uh, have minor officials, but uh, our kids did a great job, and uh, we're really thankful for their commitment last weekend. And I don't know I'm supposed to pronounce it like Buist, uh, but I sometimes <laughs> just pause out of my mouth, Buist. <laughs> no worries. Uh, anyway, there you go. Uh, I've heard someone say, or they sent me an email this morning saying, it's simply too hot to have the kids out on the pitch. And I think this was, was a soccer mom, which is a bit more strenuous, obviously, than baseball, possibly, sometimes, for some players. How do you approach the hot days with the young ball players? No, that's a great, uh, great question. It definitely is a little different for baseball because like you said it's a little bit more downtime you can hydrate more routinely during a game um, however a lot of uh, heat prevention has to occur pre-game so making sure that you're pre-hydrated before you go out um, baseball Canada actually has a lot of documentation around heat uh, warnings and you know when should we continue with games um, and actually for most baseball programs across the country, nothing would be canceled before the human index reaches 40 uh, Celsius. So we actually take it as a great opportunity because often our teams go to nationals and they have to compete in weather that, you know, we're getting up 35, 36, uh, which we don't get here that often. So having an opportunity to compete last weekend is a great training resource for our teams when we go up away and we're facing that hotter weather. Let's talk about going up away. Because, you know, the enrollment numbers have been pretty strong and grown over the last number of years, which I think is testament to the work that you do and that Mike does and others in baseball, including Dave Williams' brother, Greg, out of Mount Pearl. But finding competition to ensure that our high-level athletes are prepared for those types of competitions, and it's not all about getting a varsity career down south or what have you, what have you but getting our hat handed to us on the mainland, regardless of sport, is a problem. As a former competitive athlete, you know, you knew if when you saw Ontario on the on the schedule, it was like, Ontario, here we go. <laughs> so how do we approach that? Because travel is expensive. If you have a full baseball team, maybe 15 players, maybe for most minor teams on the travel side, what do we do to make sure that kids who do indeed have the built-in skill and the drive are able to go up along for a tournament and be able to compete with their peers? Absolutely. It's it's definitely our biggest challenge that we've had at the provincial level and, and putting on my provincial hat because I do set, sit on the Baseball and L Board of Directors. It's uh, a challenge that we've been trying to address, but as you've already indicated, there's so many different challenges to make that possible. Financial constraints definitely being number one. Um, for us to go away for a weekend, uh, we're talking tens of thousands of dollars, whereas Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, PEI, either intercompeting all summer long, uh, which makes it challenging for us to find competition levels. Uh, we've been doing some unique things, I think, over the last couple of years, pretty much since uh, you know our seasons and our travel was cut down because of COVID that we're hoping that we'll address this problem going forward and we'll continue to see some uh, better results at nationals. So, for example, uh, right now I'm at the field, actually, and we have some members of the Toronto Blue Jays Academy down here today with Greg Williams uh, with our 17U and 18 new teams so they're actually investing instead of us having to fly up to a competition on the mainland they actually invested to come down and evaluate our athletes to try to um, help I guess alleviate some of those concerns so that was great on their part um, we also have been working really hard within the province to I guess find competition opportunities for different groups so example last weekend at the Mike Bust event our 16U female provincial team competed at the 15U uh, level uh, we find that's great competition for them. It's pretty much on par what they'll see at nationals. So even though it's not necessarily a female team, they're still seeing that uh, type of pitching, those type of at-bats, which definitely helps in the long run. Um, another example would be our 17U provincial team 
that's down here today. They're playing in the senior St. John's Senior League this summer to try to get again some see some at bats with some competitive pitching that they would see up away. Uh, but it's definitely a, a ongoing challenge. Um, and I guess the last major thing that we've done the last two years is bring on the baseball and L high performance program. So that's chaired by Mark Healy and Greg Williams. And we're trying to develop like a year round program that. You know, we can continue and oversee the athlete's development, and it's not necessarily trying to do everything in a 10-week span because that's not the reality that most other provinces are bringing to nationals. So we want to keep upping our game to try to meet that level of competition. Absolutely, and this not to be smart any coaches in any minor sport, but coaching is a big part of it too. It's great for the moms mm-hmm. and dads who want to contribute, but a bit of background and training and levels being accredited levels from Baseball Canada goes a long way. Uh, last one. How did the girls do in Kentucky? Yeah, so um, we had a, we've actually had a few girls go down in, on a bunch of different teams, actually. So I know okay. there's been some uh, media that w- there was a team from the West Coast, but we actually had a lot of girls go down for the travel tournament weekend. Uh, so the Ravens from the West Coast, they had one win, um, and they had a great tournament, great weather. It was a fun time. Um, we had two girls, one from Central and one from the East Coast. They competed with the California Waves in the 18U division, uh, and they came second overall, so they had an awesome weekend. And we also had some more kids that played on the New York Wonders in the 12U division, and I'm going to say they also had one win. Uh, but again, meeting new people, having that, like seeing the different levels of competition, because uh, a lot of them have never traveled before cause since they're younger, it was definitely great for their development. And definitely some Jada Lee fans amongst the ranks of mm-hmm. those female ball players. Canada Games around the corner, 2025. Hosting at home gives us a slight edge. You know, we get that 10th fan in the stands, would be all these spectators and their supporters here locally. What's a goal, or do we bother setting goals, or how do we measure success, or how's the squad looking? Absolutely. So uh, planning for Canada Games, as most Canada Games, even if you're not hosting, happens years out. So, um you know, right now we're in the, I guess, development or identification phase for teams, um, trying to get coach development ongoing to make sure that, uh, like you said, I'm a big uh, believer that, you know, you can have the best team in the entire tournament, but if you don't have coaches to meet that standard, they're not going to get very far. So we want to make sure all that is in place. Uh, we're really excited to host at home. We're super excited to be the f- host of the first female uh, Baseball Canada Games event. Um, it's something that we've as a group in Newfoundland have been working towards for several years. Um, so, yeah, we've been identifying players, trying to give them development opportunities, um, and continue pushing for 2025. Who do you cheer for in the majors? Definitely the Blue Jays. Big Blue Jays fan. Yeah, me too. And I get to see Otani in Toronto end of the month, which I can't wait. Oh, that's exciting. I was I was at the new park, well, I guess the updated park in April. And if you haven't been, it is excellent. would highly recommend. Looking forward to it. Great to have you on the show, Chris, and keep up the good work. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. That's Kristen Coley, Executive Director of St. John's Minor Baseball. When we come back, Thelma, you stay right there. She wants to respond from what we heard what we heard from Dr. Tanya Lentz. And then we're going to talk about some of the moves in the provincial parks to take the G- diesel generation out, put up a few solar panels, and a few other odds and sods with the minister responsible, Bernie Davis. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fun memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Thelma, you're on the air. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Um, can you hear me okay? Not too bad. Go ahead. Okay, thanks. Um, I, this is actually my first time calling. 
Um, and I'm coming with a unique perspective. I, uh, I, I worked, you know, at Eastern Health myself until 2020. Um, I left work on stress leave. And um, I'm calling uh, in response to um, Dr. Is it Lent? Lentz, yeah, L-E-N-T-Z. Yeah. Oh, Lentz, okay. Yeah, um, and, you know, my own awareness of issues within the system. Um, I worked at rehab at the Miller Center for the majority of my career, um, and uh, I had my own personal mental health experience, you know, 2017 and 2020, and I actually will share. I had an admission in 2017. Um, I was very open about my experience at work, um, and I was grateful, you know, to have EFAP, but that was available through Eastern Health and the psychology service that's available through them. Um, I would not be where I am today if it was not for the psychologist that I did see. You know, so I'm a huge advocate for psychology and, you know, everything that they offer in terms of um, mental health recovery and healing. Um, you know, many people meet struggles through life, whether that be through trauma or what they endure, you know, because, you know, just look at the world today. Uh, I don't need to speak much more than that. Um, about that because it is you know the world is an awful world and it is like there's a lot of things there's a lot of good in the world but there's a lot of things that we need to still um, deal with in the right ways um, I just like to you know bring a couple points forward one um, change is needed and change is important in the mental health system but the right change is what's needed um, you know at the Miller Center I uh, when I left in 2017 at the Waterford, I will never forget that experience. And I was aware during that admission, and I questioned so much, and I still do. And I actually came away and said, you know, how many lives are ruined just by walking through these doors? Just because, you know, I actually asked to see a psychologist while I was there, and there was not one available. And that is the truth. And um, I, I, I could not believe it. And I remember this little kid that was there. He was, I'm, you know, I don't know how young they are when they go to the Waterford, but to me, he looked around 17. But he was walking around with his hood up. And I thought to myself, oh, my gosh. And, like, I was grateful to have seen psychology before that, you know. So, like, in terms of meditation, mindfulness, my own emotional healing, as well as I work at rehab. I worked at rehab with clients that went through their own struggles. So, you know, I think we did more at rehab at the Miller Center for clients that had mental health issues than they did there. Um, and, you know, in terms of psychologists leaving Eastern Health, um, I certainly can say that I had, uh, I've worked alongside colleagues at the Miller Center that have also left their positions there um, because of the inability to do what they seen was needed for the clients. Um, so it is a huge, huge problem. Um, and the other point I'd like to make is that, uh, you know, in terms of um, understanding mental health, I think what we really, really need to understand is that, you know, and I think many people do, but some may not, um, is that mental health healing encompasses so many layers. Um, emotional healing is a huge aspect, as well as spiritual understanding. And I think when I say spiritual understanding, I know some people probably, you know, move away a little bit from that thought. And, you know, they're certainly challenging in today's society, but, you know, um, I, I would put forth to link with the Institute of Noetic Science. It was founded in the 70s by an astronaut who had his own experience. Um, there's also the Science and Medical Network out of the UK and the Galio Commission, and that's out of the UK. And uh, there was a man on uh, the OCM a number of uh, months ago, and I wouldn't be able to tell you his name, but he actually talked about, you know, atoms and how we're made of atoms. And this is what some of the research actually shows is that we are. And, you know, before 9-11 happened, many people had dreams that, like, 
you know, that kind of predicted that. So, like, when there's big things that happen in society, we are one. We are so interconnected. It is amazing. So in terms of what I'm aware of, like, our conscious awareness and our spiritual awareness, I've healed in ways, but not through psychiatry and the systems that are available today, but through my own research and connecting with these groups. So I'd just like to bring forth those points. I'm glad you did. When, you know, but sometimes we talk about the advancement in mental health is a new facility in Happy Valley Goose Bay, new bricks and mortar here on the Health Sciences Complex. Yeah. But you say change and change in the right direction. Do you want to elaborate on that for a moment? Exactly. I think it's more an understanding of where the problems really are, where the understanding and the right change can, changes can be made. So just look at psychology, right? For example, like understanding, okay, you know what, when someone has a manic episode, what actually is happening? And um, I, I will tell you, psychiatrists are pushing medications. Um, and as same as schizophrenia, you know, they push medications. Um, but, you know, there's, um, there's research that shows actually, um, and this is not new research. Some of this research has been around a long, long time. Um, and that one actually says, um, you know, we're to regard everything we do not understand as a mere hallucination. We will do society a disfavor. And that's what they have done. You know, and some of these researchers that you can connect with um, through these, um, they do webinars like every week. And, you know, there's groups that are doing lots of research into uh, this area. Like these are just three groups. There are many more. If you log into these groups, you can connect with many more. But, um, yeah, the right change needed in terms of an understanding of our interconnectedness and understanding of, you know, our beings. One psychiatrist in the U.K. actually says, you know, we're embodied souls. And when you think of our soul healing and soul trauma, you know, and like the struggles that people face that when they feel that helplessness, hopeless feeling, then, you know, the right supports are needed. But I, I see our government is taking the wrong steps. And, you know, they just legislated made for these groups. And, like, support is not there to help them heal, to help them understand what they're experiencing. They're pushing medication where they're, they're having less understanding as opposed to more. Do you know, like, yeah. It's huge. What I bring forth is huge. And to be honest, I have been advocating myself, like with government and, you know, the legal system. But uh, you do meet stigma having a history. But I say, you know what, my voice will be heard one way or another. I'm glad so, you called and had it heard yeah. here this morning, uh, Thelma. Thank you for making time for the show. Yeah, you're sure, welcome. And uh, you know what, I just, I just encourage people to link with that research and to support our systems to make the right changes. Thanks for your time. Stay Thank in touch. You. Okay. Okay, you too. Okay. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Uh, will I take the minister here, David? I'm kind of up against it. Okay, let's go to line number two and say good morning to the Liberal member for Virginia Waters Plainsville. He's the Minister of Environment and Climate Change, also responsible for labor and workplace and But let's go climate with the Minister Davis on two. Minister Davis, you're on the air. Yes, Patty, how are you today? Not too bad. How about you? Good, good. You got a great uh, lineup going there today on callers. Not too bad. And so let's get to it before we run up to the break. So we talk about the big headlines here, but let's just go with provincial parks for a moment. I think there's three provincial parks that have moved off to using some solar panels to generate electricity for their campers. I can't remember exactly what they are. I think maybe Barishwap Ponds or Richards uh, Squires and maybe Butterpot. So yeah, you're exactly right. So those are the final three parks in our system that uh, have moved now from the use of diesel into solar panels uh, to provide that same service to the uh, people that patronize the parks. Very good thing. What kind of savings has that meant for the amount of diesel burned and uh, consequently dollars and cents? Yeah, so essentially it will be uh, some 53,000 liters of diesel that would be consumed at the parks that are not going to be consumed anymore. Uh, also, 
the that would be to the tune of close to $100,000 in savings. But even more than that, it's the noise pollution that would come along with that for the campers. Anyone that camped in any of these parks would know that when a diesel generator, which was going all the time in, in these three parks, uh, would cut in or um, would, would be on, if you were either a bit close to that, it would uh, be a little bit noisy for, for your pristine environment that you're enjoying out there in, in one of these beautiful parks. And if there's a sputter or a restart, it comes with a big plume of black smoke, which is hardly enjoyable when you're camping in one of our provincial parks. So when it does come up front investment dollar for the solar panels, and even when there's cost savings or cost recovery down the road, have the parks had to change any of their fees associated with for, for said cost recovery? No, no. This, this came out of a partnership with the Climate Change Challenge Fund uh, and, and the Department of Tourism, uh, or TCAR, uh, to put in about 220000 from the Department of uh, Tourism and some 879000 in uh, federal and provincial dollars uh, to come out of the um, Low Carbon Economy uh, Leadership Fund, which we've been making announcements uh, for the last uh, couple of years on, and, and we've got a new section that's coming up now in the next little bit that's going to be some more municipalities and not-for-profits and government buildings going to be transferred over as well. Might not be your ballywick, probably more inside of the tourism, culture, arts, and recreation, or um, I'm not even sure about portfolio. But any thoughts about extending the provincial park camping season to match the national parks? Because there's a disconnect there. Oh, I mean, I know when I was there, I won't speak for Minister Crocker, uh, but what I can say is that I know that there was lots of discussions about, you know, improving the shoulder seasons and trying to extend those shoulder seasons, and that would include our parks as well. I think that's an important piece. I know the the valued staff uh, that we have in these parks do fantastic work, and anything we could do to expand those services would be uh, would be amazing for all people, the people that patronize parks, but also the people that uh, do the valuable public service in those parks as well. We're in the early days, but the announcement of $157 million oil to electric incentive program, which I think is different and better than past programs, what's the uptick been like? Because if I just measure through my unscientific method of looking at my email, an awful lot of people are interested, which means there's going to be huge demand on the very few companies doing this transition and the availability of electricians, what have you. So what's the uptick? The uptick has been fantastic. I can get you the numbers, and I was hoping to do uh, uh, every couple of weeks call in, give uh, people an update on where we're to with those things. Um, and we're very, in early days, as we talked about. We're about uh, almost two weeks in now, or just a little under two weeks. Um, it's been great. We had a lot of people that were waiting in the queue, wanting to wait for the program to be announced with the federal and provincial partnership there. So we've done some really good things with respect to that. We're really happy with where we're to, and and the reason why we've uh, Patty, the reason why we've extended the program to a four-year uh, window is it'll allow those industries to grow as well, hire more staff. They know the work is going to be there. They know the transition of some 40,000 houses over the next number of years are going to be there. Our goal is initially getting those 10,000 done in the, in the first four years, but I'm hopeful that there's going to be a program that'll go on much longer than that, uh, that'll help take care of all those 40,000 homes. So inside that world, so there's been a formal extension, is there? Because the early, uh, early on when it was initially announced, the portal hadn't even opened. It looked to me like it was pretty tight timelines given the numbers of homes that were probably going to go down this road. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. There's there's four four year program now that we have that we're going to hopefully transition about 2,500 homes a year, which will be up. This year, I think we've hit somewhere around 1,700. Uh, we're hoping to hit 2,500 this year and every subsequent year after for the next four. Uh, and then 
obviously with budget cycles and federal government partnerships, we're hoping that those programs will be extended much further than that as well. Uh, but we're in, a, we're in a pretty good spot. Uh, we hear a lot of positive comments about uh, the program. We see a lot of people, just like your email, my email is lighting up as well with questions and, and abilities to want to move on this. And I just encourage people to uh, get pre-approved before they, before they uh, get their work started, but uh, they can start with... Uh, you know, reaching out to Take Charge, Take Action, or Take Charge, sorry, website, uh, with the two utilities, and we're, whichever utility is responsible for your uh, location in the province, uh, that's the ones you'd reach out to, and they're available by phone as well. And I encourage you, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me or any of my colleagues. Uh, we're all uh, interested in trying to make, sh make sure people get moved off this, not just for the greenhouse gas emissions, which is a very positive thing, but it's also going to be good for their pocketbooks, anywhere savings between anywhere between 15 and 60%. Have you formalized the process here for the one specific caller that I had was saying, my daughter just bought a home, so she doesn't have any bills from last year, but the home is heated by oil, the long has been. You said you're willing to work with these uh, particular homeowners. Has anything been formalized versus the potential ad hoc for not a one-size-fits-all cut and dry? Yeah, well, so we, we understand fully that there's going to be uh, one of, and, and, and there's going to be more than one of in that particular example you just used. But, I mean, we've been working with people right from our previous program that was not as uh, expansive as this one. But we will continue to work with those individuals on each case-by-case -case basis because you can't factor in, uh, you know, the, the, I guess the box that everybody fits in is not going to be uh, the same for every individual case. And uh, that example that you provided is a perfect example. You're, those individuals are not going to be able to get the, um, the information from a previous owner unless it's supplied to them by the previous owner. But we'll work with them uh, and the utilities that would be able to secure some of that data. But more importantly, it's going to be making sure those people that are on oil are going to be able to get off oil because that's what we all want to, to, to achieve in this program. A couple of quick ones. Why aren't small businesses eligible for this program? Uh, stay tuned. There is another subsequent announcement coming in the next couple of weeks. Have you found anybody to clean up the old fish sauce plant out in St. Mary's? We're in the process of doing. Uh, uh, we're in the process of doing an RFP and working with the, the town out there uh, to put a cost on how much that would be to actually uh, clean up that site and remediate the site. We're in that process. Once that's done, that'll be very uh, much public uh, knowledge for sure. I can't wait to get that done as well. And so that will be done. Uh, as, as I can't prejudge what's going to come out of the consultation or the uh, the RFP that's going to come out uh, once we look at the numbers and see where we're going to go. We've had conversations with the MP, the MP for the area. He's willing to go to bat with us with the federal government to ensure they're uh, uh, going to work with us on this as well. Appreciate the time, Minister Davis. Excellent. I just want to say a big thank you to the St. John's Minor Baseball for the great program they did for Mike Bust uh, and the memory of him and the great work he's done. Kristen's done a fantastic job of working in the in the system. My first job was an umpire uh, in St. John's Minor Baseball, and uh, I'm really happy uh, about that. Patty? Uh, one of mine, too. I was the peewee ball coordinator at Small Wishing Well Ballpark. Peter Mulroney in the big park doing bantam. Oh, excellent. I remember Peter Mulroney. He was a great umpire, by the way. Appreciate the time. Thank you. And thanks for the great work on getting the information out about the, chem uh, the test kits for the wells. Uh, that's in our shop, and uh, DGSNL is uh, any of those offices are more than happy to provide you with test kits for your wells. And also, that's the same spot you can drop them back to. Appreciate the time. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. It's Bernie Davis, Minister of Environment and Climate Change. Final break of the morning. Ron, you're there to talk about pedestrians and cyclists. Don't go away. Welcome back. The final word this morning goes to line number one. Ron, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. Um, yeah, I'd like to talk about a few experiences I had in the last 24 hours driving. And uh, I know when it comes, it, it, I want to speak about like me as a driver. 
bicycle, motorcycle, pedestrian. Uh, I've had an interaction with all of it in, in the last 24 hours here. I'd like to share with anyone that may be listening just for all of our safety. And a lot of times, you know, here my wife was in for one one experience and, and the motorcycle caught across in front and everything. And she said, Ram, why do motorcyclists always tell us to watch out for them when they don't watch out for us? So I'd like to just like touch on a few things here that, that, I, that I witnessed. Uh, the first one with the motorcycle thing, and I'm not blaming motorcyclists. Like, we're all in this together. It's We're all got a vested interest in this, whichever one of these people, whether me as a driver or whoever I'm going to mention here. I'm not trying to blame anyone for anything here, just to share information. Um, the intersection that Mary Meeting, Freshwater, Adams Avenue, where the old booth is, when you're coming down off Adams, you get a light turn left uh, arrow. And I'm familiar with the intersection, so I came up, seeing a motorcycle coming down. It's not one of these crotch rockets with a little kid on it. It's looked like a bit older person. Not old, but, you know, middle-aged guy. And it was a motorcycle. Go ahead. And the motorcycle, yeah. And uh, so as he's coming down, I knew he had the green light, uh, arrow. I knew my light was going to change green. I knew he was going to turn left, and I just waited there. And as, as things changed for him and it went orange, I could see him cracking that throttle, and he was going to try to beat that orange light. And came across right so when he turned on the corner he was probably doing 50 or 60 so just looking at him, the visuals of it it didn't seem like the kind of guy do that like you know whatever and i'm thinking you know just okay that's one thing right just i just went about it my way my wife had a chat about it well the yellow does not mean speed up yeah yeah so later in the day i was going across the parkway uh going i guess west i guess by the by the what do you call it the hospital there right so i'm going towards the mall and there's a guy in the inside of my lane going as I'm going towards Avalon Mall on a bicycle. He's done up with a nice sweater on, got the racing tire, 20 speed bike. He looked like a professional biker, this guy did, right? And he's going along. And I glanced over to my left by CBC and everything, and there's a, there's a biking path right down that side of the highway. And I'm thinking to myself, why is this guy out on the road when there's a biking path put in over there for bicyclists, right? Anyway, whatever. So I'm cruising along. I slows down. I get squeezes around them when we when traffic allows it, and just goes on my merry way, right? And uh, as this thought is going through my mind, I seen a bicycle bike, bicyclist over on the other path going the same direction. So I'm thinking, geez, it's pretty good, but he's got the flags on it and everything, nice and bright and everything, nice bike going down the path. I said, why couldn't this other guy be over on that path where the good guy is, right? Like you know, the the that's what the path is for over there, I guess, walking, biking, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking how great this guy is doing over on the biking path. When we got down to the next intersection, I had the green light. Buddy on the biking path chooses to cross over the four lanes of traffic on a crosswalk while both lanes of traffic got a green light, and he takes a chance on scooting right across in between everything. I'm thinking to myself, like, you know, what what are these people thinking? Yeah, it's intermittent adherence to safety and safe behavior. Uh, Ron, because of time on the clock, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. But between cyclists and motorcyclists, those of us driving regular passenger vehicles, just be aware of your surroundings and, you know, taking chances is madness. I I won't get to share my pedestrian story with the pedestrians, too. Like, I had a pedestrian story, but we'll leave that for another time. Okay. We'll do that. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for taking my time. I really appreciate it. No problem, Ron. Bye-bye. All right, that's it. Good show today, but we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.